You make me feel like dancing! I wanna dance the night away! What the hell are you two doing? It's called rocking out! You wouldn't understand, Dad. You're not with it. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. No way, man. We're gonna keep on rocking forever. 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 Hi, and welcome to another episode of Square Waves FM. I'm your host, Bianca. Co-host with me is always, a.k.a. L'Oreal Minion, Brian. (laughs) And we have a returning guest today, Brandon. Hello. So, as you can guess, if you listened to a previous podcast, you know that this one's going to be about raves. But before we get into that, we got our pre-show and games we played this week. So, why don't you take us in and talk about the pre-show? Talk about the pre-show. Yeah, okay, cool. And first of all, we have to thank uh, Brandon for being so gracious as to uh, return to the show. Thank you very much. We're happy to talk to you again, man. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Fantastic. All right, so we've got a few things here, uh, and we have a couple of letters to look forward to as well. Oh, yeah, I forgot we had letters. So first of all, I wanted to send a shout-out to uh, our friend of the show, Joe Mastriani, who is doing... He's participating in the Basel Ride for Hearts. Because margarine is healthy. That's right. <laughs> when you think of Heart Smart, you think of eating globs of margarine. Mmm, nom, nom, nom. Right out of a tub. Mmm. By the pound. That's my favorite nursery ride. <laughs> so... He's doing a fundraising thing, uh, so if you have a dollar or two to spare or something, he's going to be riding his bike a whole lot to uh, promote heart health and yeah. stuff like that. And I believe that uh, for this cause, they shut down the Don Valley Parkway, so instead of there being, you know, a few uh, dozen kilometers of backed up cars, it's all backed up bicycles. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, man, they had some marathon thing last week. Uh, oh, I hate that stupid marathon. Yeah, so do I. The, the, it's, uh, the start line is... On Young Street, Ugh. which is a big commercial street for the most part. Mm-hmm. But they put it right at our residential street. So we hear these loudspeakers as they boom their hearty, overly optimistic, too friggin' early to be that perky announcements. Yeah, 7.30 in the morning we were woken up on a Sunday to, uh, to some enthusiastic loudspeaker douche yelling... So that was unfortunate. Yes, it was. So we petitioned the city. Last year, we petitioned the city to um, have Sporting Life move the start line to a diff- to an, a commercial intersection. Yeah. But that didn't work, so we're going to... Uh, we'll talk to our MP and see if that does anything, and I'm sure it won't, but whatever. It have, fight we the get, power. We get, yeah, right on. We get two or three of these a year, so... Oh, we can always try the five minutes, time. so he seemed to like... Uh, Dealing with the small people. Okay, let's try that. I'm sure he'll listen to us in our, <laughs> our th- first th- world problems. Yeah, exactly. That is very. That is the definition of a first world problem. Yeah, move the start line for your uh, marathon run two blocks south. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you go on a hunger strike. Um, I wanted to announce that our also friend of the podcast, Anatoly. Hello, Anatoly, and hello, Joe, of course, of uh, the Dust Nostalgia podcast. He has a Once in a Blue Moon new episode about learning to program in MS-DOS. Hmm. I listened to it. It was a good one. It was very interesting. I can't remember the name of his guest, but uh, he had some really interesting, insightful information and talked about what it's like uh, kind of acclimating to the MS-DOS environment and working with the limitations of very, very old, early uh 
x86 platform hardware. So give that a listen if that sounds interesting to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read um, I've, I've read about half of a really interesting article called Lionhead: The Inside Story. It's about uh, Peter Molyneux's uh, now defunct uh, Lionhead Studio, talking about uh, the early days and getting uh, purchased by Microsoft and uh, lots of other stuff. It was a great article. I'm going to link that in the show notes, as well as the uh, other stuff that I talked about. Um, This week is the Google I.O. conference that happens from May 18th to 20th. That is Wednesday to Friday. So I always try to watch the keynote for that. It's like two hours long or so. It's got really interesting stuff. Uh, this is where Google announces all their new Android stuff and other technologies. Ooh. And just in time, too, I... I have a busted screen on my uh, Android. Yeah, that's right. Poor Bianca dropped her phone. For it the, fell out of my bag. It's the only time you've ever done that is crack your phone screen. Yeah. So I'm hoping it lasts until this, uh, an, until after this announcement and the uh, phone's released in the fall. Since our contract lasts in, uh, what is it, November? Yeah, November we can buy new phones. Yeah, so I can hope you get the new phone then. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it goes. So I, I'm anticipating a new version of Android will come out probably in a month or two. There have already been so a couple this, of... So uh, with the current videos. one, like Marshmallow? Marshmallow, yeah. Uh, N is the next one. Uh, there are rumors about what they're gonna, what desserts they will use to call to name the next one, whether it's Nutella or nut, Nuts Galore, or I don't know. They'll think um, of something delicious for the name. There is something. It's on the tip of my tongue. Ugh. It's the stuff they use in, like, Mars Bar or something. Now. Nougat. Nougat. It's probably going to be nougat or something. Nougat. Like oh, it could works. be. Could be. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. And finally, Bianca and I, a couple of summers ago, we visited the Personal Computer Museum in Brentford, Ontario. We've talked about it before. It's uh, run by an extremely cool guy by the name of Sid Bolton. Um, it's about an hour or so out of Toronto, maybe a little bit more. Off of that. Thank you. <laughs> we had such a good time there. They have such amazing, cool stuff. Uh, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but yeah. uh, we took a bunch of photos while we were there, and I finally got around to publishing a link to our photo gallery from that visit. So if you're into old computers and if you listen to our podcast, I'm sure you are, you're going to really enjoy uh, the photos in that gallery. You're this getting... bird is chewing the heel of my foot. That's and... gross. You stupid little <laughs> carnivore. <laughs> All right. Wow, that was real That was real nice and succinct. Um, uh, Brendan, have you played anything interesting uh, since we talked to you last? Any video games or tabletop or what have you? Well, I will uh, skip over my embarrassing Jetpack Joyride uh, addiction. I love that game. Um, That's a brilliant game. It's yeah, a it's a lot game. of fun. And it's infuriating, but you keep going back for more. Oh, yes, precisely. It's so I, I am addicted. Yeah, rightfully so. That is just like a perfect arcade one-button game. It's just so well done. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually did play uh, some tabletop uh, games last weekend. Um, oh, like what? Well, the first one was, was called uh, The Adventurers, The Temple of Chalk. Hmm. And it is like a uh, an Indiana Jones-type, uh, sort of like a temple... Uh, or almost like a dungeon crawl for uh, adventurer, uh, like stereotypical adventurer types. Um, so you've got like your Indiana Jones and your, your you know, your Lara Croft with the uh, serial numbers filed off and that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and uh, basically uh, the game board has sort of a three-dimensional, uh, three-dimensional parts to it. Um, and you, uh, you basically have to navigate uh, treacherous... Uh, 
uh, trap-laden hallways and lava pits. And meanwhile, there is a large boulder which is continuously rolling towards you. Oh, nice. um, of causing a bit of uh, a bit of um, stress because you have to basically search for treasure and get out of the way of this boulder, which uh, every every player as part of their turn has to roll some dice. And uh, if the dice uh, value is above a certain threshold, the boulder will move a few spaces on the game board. So it's always kind of in the background, and there are various pathways that you can take through the temple. And uh, if you uh, uh, happen to die... Um, everyone sort of has a backup adventurer who uh, repels in through the ceiling type of thing and, and picks up where you left off. So the, the huh. goal is to escape uh, with your life, but also with as much treasure as you can carry. Sounds very video gamey. It is, actually. It's, it, it's uh, not, not uh, at all static. So is it like a, a roll the dice kind of a board game, or is it more of an RPG kind of no, a thing? No, it's, it's definitely just like a roll and move. Uh, roll and move type of game. No, no, no RPG elements beyond uh, uh, little miniature uh, chits that that represent your uh, your adventurers and or I think they may they're actually they're molded molded figurines, not painted, but uh, but uh, molded. So they uh, it, it adds a little bit of realism that way. Neat. Uh, and then uh, we followed that up with my one of my personal favorite uh, board games from way back in the day, uh, along the same lines. Uh, it's called Fireball Island. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's... That, uh, it has a boulder it, too, doesn't it? Or a marble or something? Yes, it's got uh, marbles that represent uh, fireballs that are being, you know, vomited out of volcanoes as you uh, traverse this um, island in in pursuit of a treasure at the sort of the top of the hill. And there's this idol uh, that can shoot fireballs that uh, is guarding it. And you are all uh, in a race to acquire the treasure and then try to get down to the dock at the other end of the island. And everyone is uh, is attempting to steal the treasure from you as you do so. Um, it's about the game's about thirty years old, uh, and uh, I play it with my kids, and uh, they love it. I mean, we put the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark theme on a loop, <laughs> and just like just give her for about you know the forty five minutes or so that it takes uh, to play the game. And it's very the, the the mechanics are extremely simple. It's literally just roll one die and move. Uh, but you have uh, cards that uh, you can you can use to take extra turns. Or steal from your opponent, and uh, the game board itself is is uh, three dimensional. Um, it's like a single piece of molded uh, molded plastic that is, is a total three dimensional island with caves and and sort of roots through. Uh, it's uh, it's quite it's quite something. That's it's really not, cool. It's not your average uh, not your average board game, and I've actually managed to keep my copy about ninety uh, percent intact over the over the decades. I've had it since about nineteen eighty six. Well, that, that's a hard one to keep intact because that one has like the moving parts and all, doesn't it? Like yeah, the... it's got well, it's got um, it's got a bunch of small stuff like the uh, there are bridges that can be knocked over and marbles that can easily get lost and and uh, the game pieces are highly sought after. Mm. And uh, the game itself, if you can find a complete copy on eBay, you're looking at about 300, 300 bucks. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I wonder if that's how much it would cost to replace Brian's marbles. I mean, he's already lost them. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good times. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it, there's no real sort of investment of, uh, of time. It's a, very, it's a very quick game, but it's, uh, it's not for the uh, faint-hearted. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, so I guess we had sort of an adventuring theme at the last our last uh, games night. So cool. Yeah, it was good times. Oh, good stuff. Anything else that you played recently? Uh nothing. Nothing comes to mind except you know just playing Jetpack Joyride when I should be working. Uh huh. Or you know that sort of thing. Of course. <laughs> well, Bianca, how about you? You play anything interesting lately? Let's see. 
Oh, uh, I decided to uh, prune, a, a prune, prune, uh, prune, remove, prune a couple of find the shit games off my to playlist. So we play. So I played Nine Clues, Secret, Secrets of Serpent's Creek, Time Machine, Time Mysteries, Inheritance, uh, Vampire Legends, The True Story of Kisalova, and what? A- <laughs> I know awful fucking names. And I started playing. Uh, oh. Secret Order 2, Masked Intent, and started playing Time Mysteries 2, the ancient something. These are the most generic sounding names they could possibly have chosen. I guess there's so many of these games that they've just kind of (laughs) run out of names, so they kind of have like a a pool of words, and they're like... (laughs) Roll the dice and see which words to put into the title. Yeah, so the most one I'm currently playing of the finest shit genre is The time- Mystery of Krambus, <laughs> The Jewels of Nevercrup. I no? hate you. What is it? Time Mysteries 2, The Ancient Specters. That's exactly what I just said. <laughs> so basically, I played a whole bunch of finest shit games this week. Mm-hmm. Also known as hidden object games. Yeah. Or hogs, which are more fun to say. Yeah, hogs. Uh, yeah, and the newer ones actually also have some have really shoddy story elements, and they're not all just uh, hidden object scenes. There's some uh, composition of there's some puzzles in them. The newer puzzles, particularly by those done by Artifacts Monday, tend to actually be remotely doable. They're not insanely difficult. For example, the uh, sliding puzzles are not are almost a thing are becoming a thing of the past with Artifacts Monday games. Mm-hmm. Where they have what looks like a sign puzzle, but in fact, it's a swap the piece puzzle, which I love so much more. Oh, yeah, you know, that's way less frustrating than sliding tiles. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is just to recognize which pieces belong next to each other, and yeah. not so much how to move one piece across the board without screwing other stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that really frustrating. I did play a couple of the, um, they did have a couple of, uh, slide the boxes to reveal the shit on the ground, but they were just a few big squares, and they all moved, uh, pretty easily once you figured out uh, how to mo- once you figured out uh, you know oh I can put these two like this oh here we go we'll move this big one and it just fell into place so easily mm-hmm. and other than that wasted some more time on uh, Adventure Capitalist yeah that's right we both uh, we both successfully completed their events there's mm-hmm. another one next month I like these events me too this is an easy one so it was just yeah it was a good time and are you going to talk about the one that I begged you to pay, play for the longest time and you played for a good 45 minutes or so? Yeah, I started Doom 3. Yeah. BFG edition. First Doom she's ever played. That's right. So you didn't play it for that long and you played it several days ago. Do you remember much about it or any any uh, uh, opinions or impressions to share? It's dark. I need my flashlight and there's a lot of monsters. Ooh, I can shoot them. And they explode. Yay! Booty cootie shooty! <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, it's less dark than the original Doom 3, which Yes, had... I remember you playing that one. I remember you watching you play it when it came out. That's right. So that one, you can either put a flashlight in your hand or a gun in your hand, but not both. Whereas in the BFG edition, you have like a shoulder-mounted flashlight, but they balance the game differently to uh, compensate for that. They ramp up the challenge a little bit. They actually make the... Did the flashlight always run out of charge when... Uh... In the other mm-hmm. one, too? No. Okay, because this one runs out of track. That's how they balance it. That's right. Yeah, they did a few things to balance it. I was super skeptical about uh, Doom but 3 BFG. Playing, but I think it looks like the the time duration for the flashlight is longer on Recruit than it would be on uh, some of the higher levels. Oh, I don't know about that. Is it? It, it seems to me that if they're, if they're going to have 
difficulty, they're going to probably related to the flashlight too. Maybe. Yeah, they might. Yep. So that's all I played this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you played a lot of hidden object games this week. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you get stuck on one, I can't help but look over, and you found everything but that one hard-to-find object, which of course is hard to find, and I give give up. And say, screw your stupid game. Yes, I do. So, and so what have you played this week? Ooh, so I played two things that were noteworthy this week. Uh, one of them was uh, given to me by uh, a humble listener of the podcast, so I won't uh, call attention to the person that bought it for me, but uh, if they're listening, thank you very, very much for getting this for me. It's very much in line with my sense of humor. Uh, it's called the, Pro- the Preposterous Awesomeness of Everything. It's <laughs> so stupid. It's extremely weird. It's very British. Um, it's... Uh, it's a point-and-click adventure game. The graphics are, like, extremely, like, uh, grotesque, deformed people, but it's, uh, like, all based on photographs. So, like, people are sort of deformed a little bit, and, like, their heads are huge, and their lips are huge. They sort of look like those, like, African anatomically odd, uh, like, soapstone dolls or whatever, if you know what those look like, the statuettes. Um... Everything is, like, very peculiar-looking, very off-putting and strange. Uh, the humor is really, really uh, funny. Um, th- there's, there's lots of really cheesy humor. Um, it has, like, lists of verbs that you can click at the bottom, and then you click uh, something in the interface. Let me just read the list of v- verbs here. Um, so, you have these obvious ones, examine, talk to, and pick up. Then there is disrespect, do a, pa- do a backflip, and pray for... There's a do a backflip button. You can click do a backflip and your character, for no particular reason so far, just does a backflip. Then there's use, consume, and befuddle. And in this screenshot, I have an old camera and a jar of jam in my inventory. And the quote is, if you don't do as I tell you, ramen noodles will cease to exist. No, ramen noodles will cease to exist. It's one of the fundamental beliefs of modern Christianity. <laughs> yes. So it's a it is a befuddling game and it's really funny. It's very funny. I'm having a great time with it. Understatement. I looked over and I just thought, or rather, I said, "What the fuck, stupid crap, are you playing?" And it is stupid (laughs) crap, but it's it's very smart, stupid crap. It's not dumb, dumb. It's smart, dumb. If that makes sense, it's very self-aware. It's it's great. I cannot recommend it enough. I will very gladly put a link to this in the show notes. And thank you once again to the extremely generous, thoughtful individual who who bought it for me. I appreciate it greatly, and it's very clearly a a game just for me. So thank you. Um, Come here, Brittany. The other game that I played uh, starting yesterday, and I'm liking a lot more than I even expected I would, is the brand new Doom game that just came out yesterday. Um... I, I pre-ordered this. I was sort of on the fence about it. Doom 2 is my favorite game of all time, bar none. And I love the original Doom as well, enormously. Um, I loved Doom 3. And uh, I love id games. This is the first Doom that had nothing, like no part of, uh, or no participation from John Carmack, or I think anyone from the original id software. Oh, interesting. It is interesting. Uh, John Carmack now works for Oculus Rift, who is, works, who is uh, owned by Facebook. Oh. So it's such a peculiar thing. John Carmack was like a huge proponent of uh, open, free open source software and uh, open standards and stuff like that. So to work for Facebook is something that I don't think anyone, especially him, could have expected. But I think he's, right. I think he's still holding true to those values. So this Doom, it's really, really good. And it's very Doomy. Um, it's very Doomy. It's gloopy, gory. 
It's you gory and hellish. Hearts out. I mean, you rip the hearts out and you feed it to him. Yeah, you. They, so yeah, the. How do I even start? This game, it's of course, it's about shooting. In the first five seconds of the game, you got your pistol out and you're shooting these zombies. Yeah. Um, a minute later, you've got a shotgun and you're shooting zombies even bigger. Um, it's uh, a game where, just like in the original Doom, your best weapon is the speed that you run at. And interestingly, you can not only jump, but eventually you can double jump and you can climb up uh, ledges when you're about like uh, midsection higher, face higher, so to a, a ledge. So movement is extremely important in this game, and you run really fast. So it's a really nice fast pace, and uh, outrunning your uh, opponents and kind of out maneuvering them is very very important. Um, and it's just such a viable thing to do that uh, I've been enjoying just using the basic pistol instead of the beefier weapons whenever possible, just to pick enemies apart very slowly. And you have this kind of a ballet of dodging and and uh, ducking and stuff and climbing. It's really, really neat. It's very engaging. I'm having a great time with it. The weapons are cool. The art is incredible. The demons look incredible. The, the uh, uh, I wouldn't say backgrounds, but the levels look very much like the original Doom. Um, Mars space stations and like hellish uh, skyscapes and stuff like that. Um, it's very much inspired by the original. So is the music. It's really uh, evil, kind of cool guitar metal mm -hmm. music. Um, that very much sets the mood. Like um, death and, metal almost. Like. Yeah. Some of it is like really hardcore stuff with very kind of raspy grating tunings on the guitars, on the distortion. And it totally gets you into it. It, like, it doesn't only complement the action. It actually like accentuates it. Oh, boy, is it a cool game. So having a great time with it. It's, uh, I had two crashes in the first hour and not again since. I've played it for how long now? What? How do I have six hours played? It came out yesterday. <laughs> played oh a whole gosh. bunch last night while I played my find the shit. Apparently so. That time just melted away. I cannot yeah. believe I have six hours played in that. Well, time of course, we're, my only comment is, yes. can you, is my game disturbing you? <laughs> yeah, I know. She, my darling wife asked me whether her, her hidden object game was disturbing my heavy metal, gushy, bleeding shotgun game. Yeah, because he asked me if I could game. watch my volume. <laughs> well, that's our understanding. If one of us is interested in a game, then the other person turns their sound down or close to off. Those RPCs are right next to each other. Just the way it goes. So, hey, this game is so much better than I thought it was going to be. I'm very, very pleasantly surprised. I was super pessimistic. I thought it was just going to be a cash grab. Oh, yeah, so one, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention this one uh, feature of the game, which is uh, melee. When you, um, when you have an enemy almost completely out of health, they kind of stagger and go into this low health mode where they stand there and they start flashing. And that's an opportunity for you to, to uh, press your melee button when you're nearby and do this like super gory, ripping them to little shreds with your bare hands kind of a kill. Which complements them ripping your limbs and pieces off when you die. There's a lot of ripping and limbs in this game, yes. Oh, but, when uh, you die? Like they rip your arms and legs off. Like the last thing you see oh, in yeah. the death animations are wicked. being tossed and eaten. It's great. Oh, I'm fighting this big red baron of hell guy, and when he beats you, he like you land on your back looking at him, and he like steps on your midsection and rips your legs off and slaps you in the face and then yells at you. It's a little much. It's a little much. The whole game is a little much. Like over the top doesn't even describe it. True, it but delightful. this game can lend itself it to that kind of over the top. 
Well, not every game can. It, a game better have the goods to back it up if it's going to be like that. Uh, we were talking with some people on Twitter a little while ago about Typing of the Dead Overkill. Uh, I don't, Brendan, I don't suppose you've ever played either House of the Dead, the shooting game, or Typing of the Dead. Yeah, I'm familiar with both, yeah. Oh, cool. So the original type, the original House of the Dead is cheesy, ridiculous fun. Um, yep. Typing of the Dead is doubly ch- ridiculous, but just as he- cheesy. Um, there's this new one out a few years ago called uh, Typing of the Dead Overkill, which is full of, I don't know, just like full of swearing, and it's trying to be self-aware, but I just didn't find it funny at, at any moment. I think I played it for an hour and then never touched it again, which is too bad, because that game actually had a co-op mode. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you and I played it together, but uh, didn't get very far. So, so you that, can improve your keyboarding skills together? Is that how it works? I don't know if either of us need much improvement in our <laughs> keyboarding skills. I think we both type upwards of 100 words per minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, of course. Of course. So uh, so that was a game that kind of wrote checks that it couldn't cash. It, it, it was trying to be bigger than its britches, but its britches were not very big. Yeah. Whereas Doom is super over the top, and it's actually so good that I don't mind it. Yeah, it's already, yeah, because it has that beautiful background. It's like, just looking over the, that vast sea of, like, flames with those sparks coming up. Yeah, yeah, the effects are amazing. The frame rate is great, despite my, you know, I, I don't know, it's a, I have a pretty good computer, but it's, like, it's probably the top of mid-range. I wouldn't even call it high-end. No, it was high-end when we got it, but... Yeah, considering uh, Quantum Break, which I played a little while ago, by Remedy, who's a phenomenal programmer, and I'm surprised at how relatively poor the performances in that extremely beautiful game. But Doom is also extremely beautiful, and I'm getting probably between about 80 and 50 frames per second at all times, which is excellent. So I don't want to go on too much about Doom, but I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I'm very happy with it. It's a really fast-paced game. It's closer to the original Dooms than Doom 3 was. I still love Doom 3 for what it is. And even Doom 3 and Doom 3 BFG Edition were differently paced, although being very similar. Uh, all of those games, I think, have phenomenally good merits and are all worth your time. But this brand new Doom, if you're looking for something new to play, it's a good one. All right. And That's enough yapping out of me. So now we have, a, we have a couple of letters. Ooh, they're nice and lengthy. So do you want to tackle either or both of these, or should I read them? I'll read the first one. Okay, you read the first one, please. Okay, this first letter is from Ryan Barnard. Bernard? I don't know how the fuck I think he pronounces it Bernard. Hello, Bernard. Ryan. Great to hear from you. Hey, Brian. I have no experience in the rave scene at all. Oh, great start. <laughs> so I don't have much to contribute to your last episode. But you mentioned Tiesto. Oh, Tiesto. Tiesto during the show, which triggered my memory about my first job back in 2000 during the summer after my first year at university. I worked at a small company in Seattle. Oh. It was basically in an old warehouse with desks scattered all over the place. There was one room with three desks in it, and that's where I sat with two other developers. Yeah, they all shoved us IT ner- nerdy IT guys into a separate room from the rest of the company. The other developers in there introduced me to DJ Tiesto, and somebody had some crappy speakers that we'd listened to various sets of his. After some time, the other developers brought in better speakers. Then I brought in my own. We'd all listen, be listening to different sets at the same time, which just wasn't working. So, uh, we then decided to try all playing the same set at the, at the same time. We'd load up the file in Winamp. Yay, Winamp. Mm-hmm. Count one, two, three, go. And all click at the same time. Of course, <laughs> someone being a half beat off would mess up everything and we'd have to start over. Time and time again until we had it right. 
We finally figured out where two people would hit the play button for a couple of seconds, wait for a specific recognizable beat in the song, and hit pause. The first person would hit play, and the other two would hit play at the appropriate time to hopefully sync it up. If you missed it, you just fast forward 10 seconds and try again. <laughs> Eventually, we got really good at this, and it wouldn't take long to get the set going. Then we started turning up the music louder and louder and bringing in better speakers. It was awesome being in a small enclosed room with six speakers all in perfect sync. <laughs> being developers, nobody would ever come in and talk to us, so we never got any phone calls, and we never needed to leave the room to meet with anyone else. So it was rare to leave my desk for the day. I recall one time being in a complete opposite side of the office to help somebody and being surprised I could this could hear a distinct whoomp, 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 whoomp coming from the bass of the techno music. I was slightly embarrassed knowing that we had been doing this for weeks and not realizing everyone in the entire office could hear our music. And then the door to our office opened as somebody was going to the bathroom. The music blared out across the entire building. You could hear the crowd cheering and the music blasting. And I was still across the entire office at the furthest desk away. Embarrassed, I asked if they could always hear the music when the door was open. The answer was an angry, yes. <laughs> Our favorite MP3 to play was DJ Tiesto, Live at Energy 2000. I listened to this for the email for the first time in a decade, and I still have most of it spot in my memory. I probably heard it over a hundred times. And then he provides a link. Thanks for the fun episode. Oh, thanks a lot, Ryan. That's an awesome story. I, I put oh, that a, is a great story. I put a link to uh, to uh, this DJ set on YouTube in the show notes. Yeah, that's a, that's a great set. Uh, when I uh, downloaded uh, first downloaded Napster, I think uh, that was one of the first DJ sets I stumbled across. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tiesto live at Trans Energy 2000. Oh yeah, that, that was a, a golden age when Nap- yeah. Napster came out. That was a, a real awakening of uh, and a, a good way to spread this music. To people who never had it before, but uh, yeah, for sure. I never really listened to Tiesto. Bianca, you and I saw when we went to Madame Tussauds uh, Wax Museum in Amsterdam. They had a, a sculpture of DJ Tiesto <laughs> with his arms like spread over his uh, equipment, like spread spread out like a big letter T. <laughs> the Jesus, I believe that that <laughs> important DJ technique is known as. <laughs> that was really something seeing a, a, a rave DJ at a wax museum for tourists yeah I guess he's like a national hero yeah very much so So he, he's Dutch <laughs> he is um, being more into techno at the time he is kind of like a uh, an object of scorn of uh, of uh, uh, Richie Hutton Richie yeah. Hutton is he's a, he's a real snobbish kind of a guy but he would he would uh, poke a lot of fun at DJ Tiesto and so me, I guess, uh, accepting that snobbery, I never really listened to DJ Tiesto. Which is ironic, considering where Richie's career has taken him. I know. I was wondering why he didn't care since. about that dude. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it wasn't yeah, entirely... Yeah, you had a rant about him and told me all about this, and I'm like, okay, I don't get this, but sure, whatever. Well, he, Tiesto, I, I listened to a bit of that set, and it actually sounded pretty good to me, a lot of that stuff. It was, like, energetic, and it wasn't overly cheesy or anything, but a lot of the music he played was pretty cheesy. He played a lot of vocal trance, which is something that really rubs me the wrong way, mm. for the most part. And really, there, there's only one or two sets that I heard of his that I absolutely loved. And they were both Goa trance, which is like yep. psychedelic, uh, psychedelic, really kind of swirly, complicated 
uh, trance music. I've always kind of likened it to, it's like the classical music of, of electronic music almost, just in its intricacy. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that was from a long time ago, those sets. That was from like 94 or something, 95, which is early for Goa Trance. So clearly he was tuned into like what was going on. I mean, he's played a million times all over the world. He's, I don't know if he still is, but at some, at one time he might've been the highest paid DJ in, in the whole business. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, good for him for working his way up as he did and for mm-hmm. finding that notoriety on Napster, etc., and in <laughs> computer programming offices and all of that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great story. Him, uh, Ryan mentioning trying to synchronize all of those uh, playbacks at the same time reminds me of uh, learning to DJ and learning to be, uh, beat match. That was that was very challenging and hearing it kind of skipping. Yeah, for sure. Doing the uh, shoes in the dryer. Yeah, exactly. Shoes in the dryer. uh, The locomotive kind of a train wrecking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So thanks a lot, uh, Ryan. Great to hear from you. Uh, We've got another letter from uh, Emmanuel from France. Emmanuel says, "Hi, squares and Tootie. I mean, birds should have the right to choose their name, right? That's right, Joey. Type Tootie on my keyboard that episode. Uh, hope you're fine. Thank you for the great episode about raves. Always feels weird to me when I hear people talking about the local scene, as I never got any interest in uh, the things happening near me. The fact that almost nothing happened may have helped. <laughs> Same for current electronic or rock or whatever scene. So of course, I never heard about any of the people you mentioned." We did talk a lot about uh, Torontonian people, largely. have to say, I live quite close to Germany, and the techno rave scene was huge there. The only raves I went to were, for one, in 1995 here in France with Daft Punk, at the time they played without masks, Manu Le Melin, and other big names. The other one, back in 1994 in Germany, ten minutes from here, with Miss Jax, Westbam, Marusha, Sven Veit... DJ Hell, Carl Cox. Don't know if these names mean anything to a Canadian guy. Every single one of those does. Thank you very Uh, much. Etc. So the biggest ones, and I still have the fire, the fire somewhere. Um, Most of the most of these were big official raves in huge venues. So not really raves, I guess. The sound was so loud that I decided I would never go again. I still have ear problems because of the first one. At the time, I was too dumb to know earplugs even existed. I remember having been in front of a giant wall of speakers just for a few seconds, wasn't that stupid, and could literally feel the air being moved by these wonders. It was insane, never seen that ever since. But damn, I still remember Miss Jacks playing the House of House. What did you say? Did you say moved by the wonders? Uh, Woofers. Did I say wonders? I meant I to say woofers. Oh, I, I heard wonders. I'm going, huh? Did I just space out for a second and Pardon lose me. it? <laughs> Moved by the woofers. I thought I was just using uh, a flowery language. Uh-huh. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm subconsciously flowery. <laughs> um, I could have told you that garden party. Screw you, garden party. <laughs> but damn, I still remember Miss Jacks playing the House of House in front of 10,000 people in a giant velodrome. That was insane. Uh, still, I went to a big electronic party, more than 10,000 people, in 2005, with earplugs this time. Music was still very good. This was super well organized, huge sound, but clean. Was great, but of course wasn't as exciting as in the early days. The sense of ultimate climaxes good electronic music can give people who have the capacity to really listen and not just hear, abandon themselves and dive into their music, is far beyond what any other music can do. I never took any drug, by the way, so it's not a prerequisite. Even more to me than romantic music like Wagner, Bruckner, etc. And I'm an absolute fan of those two. But in the early days, you had that, plus the fact 
that all of that was new. So you could hear sounds, structures, climaxes you never heard before, and that was so exciting. Almost each new track was a new world. Plus you knew, plus you, knew uh, you were kind of an elite listener in a way, because it required some effort to be able to understand how repetitive music could make your brain travel more than a stupid verse-chorus-verse two-cent love song. <laughs> Good things always come with a price, right? Here in France, most people couldn't stand that music. I'm talking early to mid-90s. And worse, people often made fun of you, if they had good taste, of course, listening to standardized music. Um, if you happen to say you listen to electronic music, uh, of course, they didn't know anything about the more jazzy Detroit stuff or the amazing early Warp Records, etc. Never really was into drum and bass, because when I went to a drum and bass party, first, uh, I knew the infras would kill my ears even more. Infras. And because I didn't know how to dance to it and felt stupid, not that I know how to dance to anything. Still, I love the spacey drum and bass stuff like LTJ Bookham and Friends. Like, and he gives a link. Uh, oh yeah, LTJ Bookham has beautiful stuff. Oh, oddly, an Unreal Tournament track sounds very similar. One of the best game soundtracks I've ever heard. Yes, mod music soundtrack with lots of drum and bass in it. Just a quick word on remakes. Oh, this is in response to an earlier topic of ours. I don't see the point, besides money, of course, most of the time. What I'm interested in is the challenge of making pixel-perfect jumps, for instance. Once you add a ton of animations, 3D backgrounds, etc., it doesn't work the same anymore to me. For the same reason, I usually much prefer 8-bit games over 16-bit, like Mega Man over Mega Man X. I want graphics and animations and things to be out of my way so that I can totally focus on gameplay. Of course, then, gameplay has to be really, really good, and it's not trying to hide behind gorgeous graphics or cutscenes, etc. Music in DuckTales Remake is amazing, though. Yes. I like remakes when they just fix original game flaws. For instance, there's a good one for Castlevania 2 on the NES, which fixes the stupid clues people give you, increases the tech speed, which was too slow, etc. It's still only 265 kilobytes or so, plays on a clean emulator, will still play 20 years... It will still play in 20 years, as there will always be emulators on whatever the main platform is. Doesn't require DirectX 11.2b.net 2.1 plus 4.1 Service Pack 1, <laughs> Java 5, Beta 15, <laughs> okay. Doesn't save it preferences in app data. Oh, gosh, he goes on. <laughs> <laughs> P.S. By the way, um... A few episodes on hacks would be nice, maybe, as well as on books. I have read the amazing Flack Commodore book, as Brian did, and will soon start racing the beam about the VCS. And also, P.S., about game documentaries and movies, I don't think you mentioned it. I really love this one. Oh, he mentions The Ecstasy of Order, which is about uh, Tetris Grand Champions. Mm-hmm. Cheers and Cable Chewing, Emmanuel. Hmm, if we weren't hacking, I think I, might know, I think I know a couple of white hat hackers. Oh, really? Yeah, they haven't actually been taken into uh, NS. Oh, yeah, that might be fun to talk about. There's mm-hmm. also the uh, barista, a couple of doors down, who told about our podcast. Mm-hmm. We should do something about hacking. But it, regardless, thank you very much, Emmanuel. He mentioned some awesome German DJs. Miss, Miss Jax, Westbam, Marusha, Sven Veit, DJ Hell, and Carl Cox, I think, is English. Yeah, it sounds like he it sounds like he could have gone to one of those Mayday parties. Oh uh, yeah, giant giant raves in uh, arenas and and so on. Probably was yeah. Those were super enormous, and those yeah. were quite old school. Those started in like 1990 or so, I think. Yep, yep, long time ago. I have one or two uh, compilation CDs from those from those raves. Yeah, so do I. Um, it's, it's actually funny when I was in Europe in 
94, and I was buying whatever trance and techno CDs I could get my hands on. One of them was uh, a Westbam album, mm-hmm. and it, of course, uh, contained his uh, anthem, Wizards of the Sonic, which is the remake of uh, a, the Sonic the Hedgehog uh, theme music. Mm-hmm. A very popular sort of trancey tune at the time. That's a great uh, song, and he also did the Mayday song. Right, exactly, the Mayday anthem and, and, uh, and so on, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Very good stuff. That's awesome. Oh, and he mentioned DJ Hell. I, did I link to it? There's an awesome DJ Hell song on RNS Records that I've always loved. It's called My My Version of House Music or something, or My Impression of House Music. And it's the weirdest song. It's like a techno it's more of a techno than a house song, and it has like um, it has like cello or something. Very oh, interesting. interesting song. Uh, I will. I'm gonna add a thing in the show notes to make sure that I add that. My something of house music. DJ Hell. My something. Something something. I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I. uh... Yes, you are. Okay. Yeah, I'm not really sorry. (laughs) Okay. Uh, all right, so that's that's our letters. Those were very thoughtful, long letters. Thank you so much, guys. It's great to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And now time to play a rousing game of what random shit is Bianca going to ask our guest in Brian today? Oh, yeah. Did we talk about it just before we recorded, or have, have you put in context what the format of this show is going to be? I think I briefly mentioned the context. So for those of you who listened to the previous show in which Brandon was on, the uh, discussion was raves. And the format was quite free. There was a lot of tangents, random anecdotes, and the like. So they were thinking of doing a runoff, but realized that they probably didn't have enough content to do that. So I decided. So I offered a runoff, or like do like a bunch, like do a podcast on it. Then you oh, mentioned. spinoff. Yeah, spinoff. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what my problem is. It's okay. Spinoff <laughs> on that, but. Brian told was mentioned to me in a car that he didn't think that uh, he had that there would be enough content on that. So I thought, hey, I could. Uh, I might find I'll be nice. I'll let Brandon come back on the show. Thanks. <laughs> and so I decided that I could do some questions and 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 ask questions from the point of view of someone who clearly had never done this shit before. And thank you so so much for being so cool about this, dear. We yeah, Bianca sure. and I did chat about it and. Uh, she she made this proposal. I asked if if she would be open to us doing yet another. Uh, episode on this topic because there is a ton to say and mm-hmm. so this was her recommendation so she made a whole bunch of questions and has not made either of us aware of any of them so that we're going to answer them off the cuff so this should be interesting it's exciting it is mm-hmm. so for my first question we're going to start off not about raves themselves but um, about music because we know that Brandon makes music so my question is um, what kind of music have you both produced? What kind of and what kind of genres do you prefer to produce your music in? Ooh, that's a good one. Why don't you go ahead first? All right, sure. Um, well, when I first started uh, putting uh, music together in sort of a live situation, um, it was very much in the uh, trance genre. Um, I think the the name I was performing under was Trinity's Child at the time, hmm. and. Uh, it was just basically, you know, lots of arpeggi- arpeggios and uh, bass lines and, and uh, lots of, you know, snare drum build-ups and that sort of thing. The, uh, the stuff that, uh, that trance is uh, famous for. And uh, then uh, after setting aside the uh, gear for quite a few years, um, when I picked it back up again, I started trying to uh, produce stuff uh, more in the uh, electro genre. 
and uh, electro sort of in the vein of, of Kraftwerk and Africa Bambata as opposed to the way electro is being used as a short uh, shorthand for house music uh, in recent years. Yeah, I don't really get that new definition. It has nothing to do with the original. Yeah, I'm still trying to puzzle that out myself. Uh, they say there's they say there's a link uh, to Electro Clash, which was sort of a, a rebirth of uh, the synth pop and um, old school electro sound, along with a lot of the newer, more techno influenced uh, electro. Uh, but I I've tried to trace that myself, and I, I just don't really hear it. Me neither. Yeah, Electro Clash. That's like the very like blasé, uninterested female uh, vocal sort of a yeah sound. stuff like uh, adult uh, was had a, a few good tracks. Actually, you mentioned uh, DJ Hell earlier. Yeah, um, a lot of the stuff that came out on his uh, his record label uh, International DJ Gigolos was uh, was pretty much smack dab in the middle of that uh, oh, yeah. electro clash sound, which I which I loved. I mean, I when I was buying records uh, left, right, and center, a lot of it was. Uh, was electro clashy and, and sort of synth pop uh, based stuff. Yeah, it's a stylish genre. Yeah, very much so. Even uh, Fisher Spooner, uh, which is oh, yeah. quite, quite entertaining to listen to. Oh yeah, Miss Kitten, Hacker, there's a lot mm-hmm. of good stuff. Okay. Well me, I, I came from an odd place because I started writing this music when I was about 14 years old. Um, hadn't gotten a rave tape, hadn't been to raves of course. Um, however, there were elements of pop music that that really struck a chord with me. Uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> I really liked Black Box. I liked D-Light. I liked yep. Two Unlimited. Um, I liked like uh, Culture Beat and Eurodance kind of stuff. Yep. It, it all made a big impression on me. And so the music that I did was very similar to that, but not really with any lyrics. I did write a couple of songs with lyrics, but I didn't record any lyrics. Um, I was about to record a song with lyrics with someone, one of my school friends, Jennifer. I, uh, she and I hopped on the subway and were going to go to uh, another composer friend of mine, his house. He had a nice microphone that we were going to borrow. And we ended up like ringing his bell, arriving at the time that we agreed upon. And uh, he wasn't home for some reason. And so there went my, oh. one, and only, my one and only attempt to, to uh, record a song with uh, lyrics. I do have the song just with uh, piano in place of the lyrics. Um, so... I did kind of Eurodancey sounding stuff. I did what sounds to me today like more more than anything. It sounds like like uh, techno, breakbeat techno, and just like thumpy classic techno kind of sounds, with um, chords and orchestra hits and other sounds that were uh, that were kind of like the signature sounds of dance music from like ninety one, ninety two. Right. Um, later on, I went on to make... It was more harder stuff. I did some hardcore stuff. I did more breakbeat techno kind of stuff. Um, and I just played a lot with syncopations. I started to play with sound effects. I did some weird things like um, I would take a text file and render it as a sample so it sounded all screechy and grating and use that as an instrument or as an effect or something. I really played around a lot with sampling um other things i would like record my own voice and then do lots of manipulation on it so that it didn't even sound like a person saying something it sounded like a record scratching or like these horrific sorts of things i also liked to uh go into video games and rip out the audio files and put those into songs as well um uh, there's one song that i uh used the sound files from uh, a game called Dark Legions, and I used a drum beat from uh, Sadness by Enigma, 
and I punctuated it with the snare drum from uh, Nine Inch Nails. Uh, what's their big friggin' song? From uh, down, from the downward spiral. I don't know why that's. I'm spacing on that, but um, that I did some slower stuff uh, to that effect as well, which was kind of like not funky breaks, but it did have like break beats, more kind of soothing chords and all of that sort of stuff. Okay, so continuing on this vein. Yes. What were your, what was your favorite piece of equipment, whether to produce music with or just in general? Oh, that's a good question. You first, wow. you first, Brandon. Oh goodness. Um, well, I have a, a lot of um, uh, sentimental attachment to the first analog synthesizer that I uh, purchased, uh, probably around maybe '97, and it was a, a Korg Poly 61 from the early '80s, and uh, it uh, didn't have a lot going for it, uh, uh, you know, in in retrospect, except it had a an arpeggiator that you could synchronize with a um, like a pulse uh, from a drum machine or something like that. Like it didn't it didn't have MIDI. Uh, it, it predated uh, that um, uh, tool by a couple of years, um, but uh, it was a uh, um, sort of my introduction to analog synthesis, and I got a lot of use out of that. Um, I, I had a, a very basic uh, sampler, an Akai S seven hundred. Uh, which uh, had um, it, it recorded its samples onto small uh, 2.8 inch quick discs uh, <laughs> if you're familiar with that format um, and uh, you could basically squeeze just less than two seconds on on one side of a disc and then you could flip the disc over and uh, record another sort of 1.8 second sample on it and so uh, it was a 12-bit sampler um, and I still use that in my rig today actually um, because uh, I've just loaded it full of drum hits uh, and uh, I use it basically as a drum machine. Um, but a lot of sentimental attachment to uh, the Korg Poly 61, which unfortunately uh, has a, um, uh, a well-known technical issue uh, in that the battery that saves your patches uh, will eventually uh, leak and uh, damage the circuit board, uh, the main circuit board of the synthesizer. And that ended up happening to my uh, synth while it was in storage and uh, you know turned it on and to my horror discovered that uh, it no longer played the way it was supposed to oh. and uh, you know I, I, I eventually got the battery out and cleaned the circuit boards as best I could but there was a lot of acid damage um, the bad kind of acid I guess mm -hmm. and um, uh, unfortunately I haven't been able to res resurrect that synth yet uh, but it uh, was certainly uh, a great, uh, I, I took it out uh, on the road with me, played live with, with it, and uh, sampled the heck out of it. And uh, one of these days, I'll get it back uh, up and running. Uh, I don't suppose a broken analog synth is something that you can play with, because I know uh, Josh Wink, for example, modified his TB303 when he recorded an, um, a higher state of consciousness. And uh, there's other things like circuit bending and stuff oh, yeah. like that to yeah. make sa synthesizers sound wrong and sound awesome. That's right. Well, my issue is that I barely know which end of the soldering iron to hold. Uh, ditto. Uh, so I'm not uh, I'm not skilled in the arts of uh, of um, you know electrical repair. Uh, but yeah, I mean you can turn it on and it makes a bunch of uh, odd you know sounds. 
Um, and uh, I can still, uh, thanks to the uh, venerable cassette backup uh, of all of my patches, um, using a tape deck, I can load uh, the, the patches back onto the, uh, the Poly 61 as they were when I did my last backup. Oh, lucky. Uh, but it's, it's a little, it, it doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite sound, sound, you know, decent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Better than nothing, I guess. Well, that's true. Yeah, so it's it's basically a boat anchor that sits in my studio, um, and I, I will uh, I, I do intend to to try to get it fixed at some point. Hmm. Well, me, I was never too much into hardware for music production. I do right now have a Roland D one ten. What is it? A multi timbral sound module. It's basically. Oh, nice. It's 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 this like rack mount thing that I just have sitting on a shelf. Um, we got secondhand from a neighbor of my dad's. Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. and an old school MIDI hookup. Uh, what company is this? Oh, it's an Axiom Twenty Five. I think that's M Audio. Um, a a twenty five key uh, MIDI controller. Um, I didn't play with it very much just because it is those old MIDI plugs, the big two big round ones, and in yeah. and and out. So it's a real hassle to use with a circa 2016 computer. But that yep. uh, that uh, synthesizer does sound kind of nice. It's, um, the only problem with it is that it only has, I think, like a bank of either 16 or 32 instruments. It doesn't have that many instruments. So just for kicks, I, I, I was able to control it with a MIDI controller and with software. Um, and I even got it working as a MIDI device so that I could play my old video games with it, but it had so few onboard sounds that it just plays a piano instead of any missing sounds. So, like, drums would sound like piano, and it was just a big mess. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so, funny. It's a very limited machine. It's really just taking up space. Yeah. Um, and don't you also have a couple of uh, different types of platter uh, mixers? Yes, that's right. The one, my favorite piece of hardware is a Stanton SCS3 combo. Um, it is a MIDI controller specifically for DJing. Oh, um, nice. And it's really unique. Um, it's three pieces. There's a, a mixer and two virtual record decks. Uh, what's unique about it is that the main way to interact with this is that it has a touch-sensitive surface, sort of like... Not as not quite as uh, good as a modern smartphone is. It's came it came out before tablet PCs, for example. But it has the same technology as like really high end laptop touchpads, where it has these little bumps that are capacitive and they measure the electrical signals on your finger, so you can touch them extremely lightly and they respond quite precisely. So it's really neat. Like the um, the record decks, uh, the, the platter areas, it's like these two big circles, one on each of the two uh, decks, and you can separate them so it's three different pieces, so you can move them to different parts of your uh, setup. So you can kind of use them as a jog wheel where you can uh, rotate your finger around the surface of it, and it will uh, scrub the record back and forward. And nice. it's sensitive enough that you can use it to scratch and stuff. Like, you can hold your finger down and rotate it, and that will move the record precisely to the position you're putting it to, or you can kind of fling your finger where you like touch it and then just sort of uh, swipe it upward, and then it will have that inertia as if you were to throw the record forward and it will kind of meow like nice. that. So that's software configurable, however, whether you wanted to do that at all and how much inertia or friction you want to simulate. That worked extremely well with um, Tractor and Mix and other DJ software I used. I never tried other ones really. Those were my two go-tos. Um, 
And the the really neat thing which got me into scratching for that for with this device was the crossfader because it was also a touch sensitive thing. So it had three vertical bars for uh, treble, mid, and bass, um, and it had a sideways one. Uh, so yeah, sorry, it had three for each uh, deck. So six, uh, two treble, two mid, two bass, one for each channel, and it had. Uh, a uh, horizontal slider, which was for, <laughs> which is for the uh, crossfader, and it also had up and down sliders for channel volume, and it had some uh, pads which you could use as triggers to trigger a sample or to toggle an effect on or off, and other uh, control surfaces like that. So cool. it was it was really fun to play with. So because it was touch sensitive, usually with a crossfader, if you're going to use it for scratching, you. Um, slide the crossfader from the middle to one of the edges, and you turn the fader curve all the way so that instead of fading gradually, it just goes from 100% volume to zero volume when you cross a certain threshold. Mm. Uh, so that way it doesn't sound like it's fading up and down, it just kind of turns on or off. People who don't have an ear for it don't realize that record scratching is just as much work from a crossfader turning the sound on and off as it is moving your other hand up and down on the record. So because this was a touch-sensitive surface, I didn't have to actually slide anything. I could just tap one side with one, like the side with one finger and the middle with the other finger. Or you could actually hold your finger down in the middle, which was the zero volume, and tap at the edge, which was the 100% volume. You just tap, 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 and you could do these really fast transitions from uh, silent to 100% sound. So that meant you could do some really fast kind of like crab style uh, crossfader scratches, so that was a lot of fun. So Very it works. Cool. It worked great for turntablism, and it worked great for DJing. I really love that control surface. I guess the only problem with it was that if you don't plug it into electricity in the wall, you need to have three USB plugs. Oh goodness! Otherwise, you can daisy chain them together as long as you have uh, a plug for the power. So it still needed two cables: one for USB and one for electricity. So it was a real spaghetti of cables all over the place. But it was a super exciting DJ controller that I absolutely loved. I Went to our local music shop when I was looking for DJ controllers. I bought two or three of them and returned them because I just couldn't get the workflow down. Mm -hmm. But I fell in love with this thing right away. Six hundred bucks, so it wasn't. Wow. It wasn't cheap. I think it was two fifty for the decks and one hundred for the crossfader. And you, a lot of people can get away with just one deck in the crossfader. I probably should have done that and saved the money. Mm -hmm. But I've got the whole shebang, and I'm happy for it. You could even have four decks if you wanted to. And the crossfader had toggles to switch between two channels on the left and two channels on the right. So it was oh, very sophisticated equipment. And because it was touch surfaces and had toggles and stuff, you could use it for music production or for performance as well as for DJing. And even do them at the same time. Or you could use the uh, control surfaces for the platters as a uh, chaos pad to control uh, like an X and Y coordinate. Could each have a different function and you can oh, do wow. like modulation for acid sounds and stuff. Great little tool. Haven't plugged that's, it in in a couple of years, though. Mm -hmm. Well, that's cool. Speak, speaking of controllers, I, I do need to give a shout out to uh, my uh, my sequencer of choice in my live setup. That's another piece that uh, I've got a huge um, sentimental attachment to the the Alesis MMT8 uh, sequencer. And this thing looks like a piece of office equipment. It looks like an adding machine, basically. Uh, and it's done up in nice uh, late 80s gray. Um, but uh, it is, uh, from a hardware angle, it is a, a loop machine 
that is just out of this world in terms of its uh, sort of tactile playability. Um, I used two of them in my setup, and, and uh, I, I stole that from uh, watching the Dub Tribe, Dub Tribe sound system perform uh, back in the late 90s. Because uh, prior to that, I was using an Atari 1040 ST uh, software uh, sequencer program. But this thing was, was, was hands-on. Uh, it, it allows you to do uh, eight um, sort of eight tracks that you can mute on and off and you can set the loop, uh, uh, the beats, uh, sort of the, the loop size, whether it's 32 or 64 or anything, anything really. And uh, you can pump out MIDI information um, to as much gear as you can daisy chain. And uh, we're sort of living in the, uh, a golden age of hardware uh, sequencers. They, they're popping up all over the place, all these new modern uh, devices, but I keep coming back to this uh, this MMT8 combo, um, and it is, uh, it's just phenomenal. It's so much fun. It's so immediate, um, and uh, the fact that it looks like uh, office equipment, I think, is just uh, the icing on the cake. That's really neat. Yeah, my friends who uh, would perform at raves uh, and did uh, mod music, a lot of their performance involved toggling channels on and off. And so, over time, uh, the mod tracking software supported more and more channels. I think the most I ever saw was 128 channels supported. That's crazy, yeah. Which is crazy, but I think the sound cards my friends had only did like 32 channels or so. So they would usually do about between 16 and 20 channels or so. But you can do like a progressive song and change key and stuff like that depending on ooh, depending on which channel you uh, toggle. Yeah, the, the MMT8, you can, uh, you can basically bounce MIDI channels... Uh, back and forth into each of the tracks so that you can get up to like 128 tracks uh, looping um, if you really wanted to. I mean, and I guess that's the upper limit for, for a lot of the stuff that I would do. But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of neat what you can, uh, um, what you can cram into uh, very small devices, yeah. um, especially obsolete ones. Yeah. Well, let's not over answer poor Bianca's question. Let's keep <laughs> it moving. Okay, so Good now question. that we've given people a... Those are what you guys like in terms of music. Let's actually move on to uh, some more interesting stuff. Uh, I thought more that was interesting. 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 <laughs> Excuse us. Here's a good one. Did you ever smuggle anything into a rave event? I mean, anything. And we're not necessarily talking about drugs, but that <laughs> stuff that might have not been uh, ideal to smuggle into a rave event. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go first on this one. Sure. All right, there's two things that I can think of. Um, there's an innocuous one, and uh, there's an uh, indemnifying one. I'll just get the indemnifying one out of the way. I had a little Hello Kitty keychain that accidentally broke a little bit. It was this little plastic thing, um, and uh, I guess like the way it was assembled was it had these two pins, sort of, so you would... Uh, Slide them together, and that would keep it uh, that would keep it uh, together. So one of the, those two little pins broke apart, so I could sort of twist it and reveal this little uh, area inside of it, this like open area inside of it. So that was uh, that was very helpful to hide things in a place that no one would ever think to look. <laughs> and so the less innocuous one would be: um, I went to a Hullabaloo rave. Having recently bought the uh, Moonshine Records album uh, Happy to be Hardcore, recorded by the Hullabaloo founder, a DJ with the most amazing uh, DJ name, Anabolic Frolic. <laughs> yeah, such a great name. He got that from a box of tea, he says. <laughs> um, I smuggled into the rave my copy of this CD and, more importantly, a, uh, a big black marker so that he could sign it for me. Um, I didn't find Anabolic until the end of the party, 
and was kind of like chasing him down and I had my CD and my pen in my hand and a security guard stopped me and he's like why do you have a marker in here people use that to graffiti the walls and stuff I'm going to confiscate that right now and so luckily that's when Anabolic Frolic turned to look at me and I just gave him a wave and he walked over and he was the boss so what he says goes and so he waved away the security guard and he signed my copy of Happy to be Hardcore and I have an autographed copy of that to this very day on my shelf so I'm glad I ended with that story and not with the other one. <laughs> do, you, do you have anything, Brendan? Well, okay, this is uh, this is a little embarrassing, but uh, I guess I'll need I'll have to uh, provide some backstory first. Um, first big party that I went to where I ended up dancing, you know, all night until the, you know, until the break of dawn and, and the sunlight. Tell uh, the roosters crowed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a lot of crowing going on. Uh, my first big Toronto party, I danced and danced and danced and danced. And then I realized, sort of as the euphoria of the night um, had worn off, that uh, I had gotten, like, saddle sore, something fierce, like, with, you know, friction, you know, between my thighs, whatever. Um, I guess because of the jeans I was wearing or whatever. And it was, like, it was really painful. So... Uh, I was like, what can I do, you know, other than losing weight, uh, which was, uh, you know, that's a whole other ball of wax. Uh, what can I do to, um, to lessen this, uh, this pain at the next time I go out? And I was like, well, maybe a little tube of some kind of like baby cream, right? Like, uh, like diaperine or penitent or something like that, that, that might be useful. So maybe I could take a bathroom break at some point and, uh, you know, apply it to a surface area. Um, so bright idea you know I get this tiny little tube and of course the bouncer finds it the first time I get searched the uh, you know at the uh, the next event I went to and he kind of gave me this look as if are you trying to are you trying to get high off of this this tube of whatever and I was just kind of sheepishly like I just sort of shrugged and um, he was kind of disgusted so he just gave it back to me and and, and that was that so oh, there you have it uh, that's uh uh, that's my smuggling story. That's a good story. Mm-hmm. That's, about, that's what I was hoping for. Is I didn't want necessarily anything illegal. I just wanted stuff that wasn't necessarily yeah that you would smuggle in, but you were, but was innocent, but may not have appeared innocent at first. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then you know, there's also uh, trying to get water into a party was also like bottled water was also a bit of a hassle. Oh, that's uh, right. Dep- depending on the promoter. So yeah. very true. Yeah. I don't know how she did it, but a friend of mine, when I went to one of those World Electronic Music Festival three-day raves out in the country, she somehow smuggled... She was diabetic. She somehow smuggled her hypodermic needles and her insulin. Oh, goodness. And it was for nothing but, you know, legitimate medical reasons. That's the only reason why she would dare to bring something like that. But she she was afraid that they might not let her into the very expensive party so far from home and so she just decided to smuggle it in mm-hmm. and she somehow succeeded yeah so it goes yeah. to show what how effective the uh, the bouncers can be at these events yeah if you're a girl just wear a sports bra and uh, put everything underneath it just looks like you're rather buxom yeah it was probably something like that girls have some some handy hiding places mm-hmm. well in the, the rave uh, rave clothing itself be, began to uh People began to sort of uh, build uh, stash pockets into jeans and and so on. Uh, like I, I do recall having a pair of uh, fat pants that uh, had a, a hidden Velcro uh, strip 
um, over the uh, uh, the portion of denim where your zipper uh, zips up, mm-hmm. and you could you could basically tear it open and put whatever you want in there, mm-hmm. um, and uh, pockets inside of pockets and and that sort of thing. But I'm sure the bouncers uh, were pretty wise to to that uh, eventually. Eventually, yeah. Well, I, Although, I, didn't your mother buy you a pair of jeans that had like gas? So my my mom bought me. She, my wonderful, lovely mother, who was very supportive in general and still is, bought me this fantastic uh, dress shirt. It was like uh, black light reactive, and it looked awesome. It had this like nighttime cityscape kind of a skyline pattern all around it, and so I was like this city guy. I don't know. Um, little did I realize until I came home from the rave I wore it to that on the back was this circle bright orange sticker I was supposed to take off that says hidden pockets <laughs> behind the buttons or something. So I had this big like orange bullseye on me all night long. <laughs> nobody stopped me. Nobody mentioned it. And I was... They probably thought you were wearing it ironically. I... <sighs> I, I, I wasn't smart enough to do that, to be honest. I should have True, done that. True, but they could have. But they probably assumed so. If you didn't say anything and you were nonchalant. See, if I was if I was smart, what I would have done is taken that sticker off, put it on another shirt that did not have that, and then feign ignorance while they searched me thoroughly. Well, I guess <laughs> I probably didn't want to be searched thoroughly. <laughs> That's a funny Fair question. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of clothing, did you did either of you ever have like a specific outfit you wore to any of the raves or a favorite piece of clothing that you would? Uh, Wear, and it can be anything, including accessories. Well, I, I think I mentioned it last time, but my definitely my favorite piece of clothing. I had two that I'll mention. I was into like aliens back then, so one that I mentioned in the last show, I believe, was this necklace that I made myself. Um, it was like just a chain, plain chain necklace, but over it, like a very small chain, but over it, I put these glow in the dark bicycle spoke clacker things. Oh, awesome. Um, and I hung from it this little keychain, of which was a glow-in-the-dark yellow alien head. And on the back of it, I stuck a sticker from the uh, eSpace that I mentioned in the last show uh, from a guy named DJ SOS. He, uh, I think he worked as a postman or something, and so <laughs> he stole all these awesome bright orange stickers that said Rush on them. So I stuck, uh-huh. and he would just put them on whenever he's going to DJ somewhere. He just put a big thing of them on his on, on the table where the decks were, and people would walk up and grab them. And he had this like rush army of people. You'd see the stickers all over town. <laughs> so I have one of those, which I think there's like half an S left on it or something. I was wondering what that was. It looked very faded and well loved. It said rush. That's right. And so my other, I wore that everywhere, and it was glow glow in the dark, reactive black light, reactive, and all that too, so people could find me in the dark. I was very proud of that. I still have that hanging on my bookshelf. And the other thing that I would often uh, bring to raves was I had this little stuffed animal of an alien that had this, like, uh, silk hoodie. It had, like, this black kind of... It looked like a wizard robe kind of a hoodie thing. And it was just the right size that for my big, fat jeans, it would fit in the oversized side pocket. So I just stuck it in my pocket, and it was, like, along for the ride. So that was my little alien buddy. So I had this kind of alien motif going on. That's cool. (laughs) How about you? Well, um, I had a pair of, um, let's see, I believe they were lithium uh, jeans, fat pants, uh, and they were green, and uh, I wore the heck out of those. Um, Basically, I would have a revolving uh, closet of t-shirts that uh, I would pick for parties. Uh, My favorite was uh, sort of a blue... It was like a oh, turquoise, and then it had uh, yellow accents on it. But it, uh, the front of it said, uh, rave is a four-letter word. 
and uh, it would sort of light up under under black lights, and and that that was a that, that shirt was a crowd pleaser. Let me tell you, <laughs> um, people uh, were uh, happy with the sort of ironic uh, word on the uh, words on the shirt. Um, wallet chains were a big deal. Um, I, uh, my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, now my wife, she, she made a, uh, a wallet chain that was made up of, um, little smiley face, uh, plushies, like smiley face plush, uh, guys with, uh, uh, legs and, and hands. And she sort of, <laughs> she, uh, sewed all the hands together and it made this chain of, uh, of happy face, uh, little happy face men. And so we measured it to the point where either of us could, uh, could sort of you know attach one end to the belt, uh, your belt loop, and the other end to your wallet, and and dance without uh, without tripping on yourself. <laughs> uh, but I had plenty of like chain chain ones. I never did like the plastic chain, um, like the oversized uh, the oversized plastic chains. Uh, I never used, but I did have a couple of metal ones uh, that uh, I brought out uh, every once in a while. Um, so yeah, it was just uh, like t-shirts. I had I had a t-shirt that said Plur on the front because you know you kind of had to, um, you had to represent that. And um, I my one of my favorite uh, other favorite shirts was a DJ Dog Whistle uh, t-shirt that was actually a bootleg uh, that a designer <laughs> friend of mine uh, made up and, and sold in various stores in Toronto without uh, Chris Shepard's permission. I'm more so, surprised. Uh, I'm surprised not that there would be a DJ Dog Whistle shirt, but the fact that there could be a bootleg. Of that, because he's I, like such not exactly the most renowned DJ, and never was. Well, no, but it was more of an in joke, right? That's for, hilarious uh, for Toronto. And I think eventually uh, he did come to an agreement or an arrangement with uh, with Chris Shepard. Um, but uh, yeah, he would he would basically he only sold the shirts uh, in uh, a bunch of uh, like a bunch of the record stores, like the usual suspects, like Tracks and Play D and um, Ecstatic and stuff like that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, that was one of my prized uh, prized possessions for sure funny oh since you mentioned it and since we somehow neglected it last time uh why don't we define plur ah uh, yes so plur is kind of like the, the the slogan the mantra of the the rave scene um supposedly coined by a dj by the name of frankie bones from new york right. plur stands for peace love unity respect which sounds really hippie-ish and somehow, I don't know, ravers were not really as... They weren't as hippie-ish as, as you might think they are. I guess hippies are very political, whereas ravers were just kind of more uh, about the here and now, about the, 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 the moment. So uh, the, the agreement was that uh, raves are something to be attended by everyone from any socio-economical stance, from any like color or creed or background. You just accept the people that are with you, and if they're doing something, then that's cool. Let them have their good time if they're not bothering anyone. So peace, love, unity, respect. That's right. I mean, Plur was sort of the closest thing to a political statement that the rave scene as a whole uh, wound up making, I think. Um, as you said, uh, there were some, you know, there were some hippie-ish uh, undertones. And I think that varied depending on where or what scene you were a part of. Um, like the West Coast, uh, California, San Francisco type of stuff was very uh, sort of crusty and crunchy, you know, post-Grateful Dead sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that carried a lot of that, uh, those types of values um, uh, along with it. But yeah, I mean, Plur, you would see that almost everywhere. You would see that on every rave flyer. Um, ironically, sometimes it would be right next to the other acronym, ROAR, uh, mm -hmm. which was uh, right of admission refusal. So, <laughs> that's right. you know, we're all we're all about the unity and the peace and love. But if we don't like you, we'll throw you out of the party. <laughs> that's right. Uh, 
So. Well, I, I liked when they... Or otherwise we're throwing you out. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's funny because when Frankie Bones coined the term, it was in response... It was just something he yelled on the microphone when some rowdy people were getting in a scuffle during one of his DJ sets. So he, he like, famously, supposedly, I wasn't there, 1990 or something, mm-hmm. uh, stopped the music and he said, if I don't see some peace, love, and unity, I'm going to break your heads or something like that. <laughs> So I think that kind of is the, the combination of plur and roar, isn't it? That's right, yeah. I think the, the respect part of it was added later. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you really can't argue with, uh, with those values, I suppose, in a, um, in a philosophical sense. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the notion, I think, and I think for some people, uh, they wanted to add meaning to sort of their hedonistic weekend activities <laughs> and uh, plur I think uh, went a fair way um, towards um, adding that sort of uh, greater sense of purpose for what you were doing uh, from you know Saturday night to Sunday morning type of thing maybe I myself never really felt that way I kind of saw it as a live in and let live kind of a thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. plur was just I don't know that's that's all it was, I suppose. Player was just kind of a leading by example. Is is as political as I ever took it, really. Right. Oh, and that's fair too. I think a lot of people, every, everyone, would bring their own. You'd bring your own meaning to it, which I think is meaningful in a in a certain way. Yeah, it was like purposefully vague, I guess. <laughs> that's right. Just vague enough. Yeah. Um, the only time the only time the party scene really got political uh, was when it was under sort of a direct threat uh, from police and and uh, municipal uh, politicians. Yeah. Um, so you know, as far as self preservation goes, that's when the that's when the political stuff happened. Yeah, that's uh, right. Around the around the turn of the century, uh, that that sort of thing. Uh, but otherwise, people were were I think much more uh, prone to this live and let live, do what you like uh, type of uh, attitude. I would agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about some of the people you might have hung out with. Did was there anyone you hung out with at these raves that stuck out in your mind, whether you remember their names or not, or people that uh, you met who uh, made an impact on you? Ooh, I can think of lots. Do you want to go first, or should I? Um, yeah, I'll take a stab at it. Uh, I um, uh, let's see. I mean, uh, I didn't go uh, when I when I would go to Toronto. It seemed like I would always run into the same uh, girl at the smart drink bar, hmm. um, and uh, so we developed a bit of a rapport there. Um, and uh, you know maybe it was just to sell to sell smart drinks or for me to buy one anyways, but um, yeah that that was uh, that was kind of funny I think uh, probably on three three non consecutive occasions at least um, and I ran into uh, you'd run into the same people sort of over and over again but never really uh, you kind of nod or or uh, say what's up kind of thing um, but uh, I, I didn't make a whole lot of. Um, deep, I guess, connections with folks, honestly, because most of the time it was too loud to carry on a conversation. Um, you were just there to sort of dance and, uh, and so on. But uh, people that I w- went out with as, you know, as friends um, to parties, I'm still in, in touch with a lot of them uh, today. Uh, so whether it was from, uh, you know, high school or uh, university, um, those of us who were already sort of in the scene uh, and knew one another, I mean, we just, uh, we sort of just gravitated naturally together and uh, maintained friendships both on and off, uh, on and off the dance floor. And uh, in fact, I actually just went out to um, uh, a club night the other night in uh, 
Kitchener, and it was literally like a high school rave reunion. Like I could have brought my uh, yearbook and had a bunch of people sign it uh, <laughs> from 20 odd years ago. And then the fact that the, you know, they're the same the same folks are still getting together. Um, and still, you know, uh, knowing knowing each other and, and maintaining uh, some friendships, uh, it's kind of nice, you know, to have that uh, to have that connection uh, through the music and through the dancing and that sort of thing. Hmm. Well, me, I met I met a lot of people. I, I would sometimes go to raves with high school friends. I would sometimes recognize people from high school that would go, um, but. Most memorable for me, I think, would be the people that I met there. Um, I met some really interesting characters. And because I went to not only raves, but also, like, weekly rave clubs, yep, those yep. clubs in particular, you would get a lot of regulars and kind of hang out with people. There's one guy, though, that I would see at these clubs and at raves. His name was Chris. Um, really nice guy. He and I hit it off. I don't really know how, because we had the only thing we had in common, clearly, was uh, the music and raves. Um, and... It was really a, a contrast of the sorts of people that can go to these sorts of things. Um, we would always spend like 10 or 20 minutes just chatting and, and catching up on things. And I would talk about how I uh, was tired of doing my temp jobs and was about to go to college or had gone to college and was uh, struggling with my grades or whatever, but uh, trying to make the best of myself. Whereas he had started off with kind of a life of petty crime and disappeared for a while because he was on probation and then came back. And I think the last I talked to him, he was talking about diamond heists and stuff like that. <laughs> so that I was concerned for him and I was kind of cautioning him, like, well, are you sure this is the way you want to go? And he was like, don't worry about it. I'm good at this stuff. So that was a very kind of scary transition. I cared about this guy. So I felt badly that uh, he would go he would go in that direction, kind of sinking more and more over time. Uh, who else? I met uh, a very, very good friend of mine by the name of Jules. She uh, she was a dear friend of mine for at least a decade. Um, and I mean, still is. I just haven't kept in touch with her very good. I met her a couple moved. of times. Very nice girl. Yeah, you did. She's she's fantastic. She's a really, really cool girl. Um, we met a dog that threw up on your backpack. Yes, her dog threw up on my backpack when <laughs> I stayed with her in Vancouver for a while. Well, I think they missed the duck that was tacked to your bag. Yes, she did not barf on my duck. <laughs> he did not barf on my duck, the dog. Anyway, you're getting ahead of me. Um, I, I met her... Oh, so this was... It was some rave. It might have been a hullabaloo rave. And I believe it was at a nightclub. And I somehow secured the very most precious of resources at a venue like this. I got a spot on a comfy couch. There it is. Because when there's like 4,500 people in a venue, there's probably like 14 bum seats on couches. And so when you get one of those, you park yourself and you don't yep. move for like two and a half hours till you're good and rested. That's just the way it is. You overstay that welcome. So I happened to sit beside this nice girl, Jules, who was there with some uh, college friend of hers. And we kind of struck up a conversation. We had lots in common. She was really, really nice. And we developed a friendship and uh, a very close friendship. We were very, very close friends for years and years and years. Um, and I still, I would still say that we are. We didn't have a falling out or anything. We just kind of went our separate ways a little bit. But I still think of her very fondly. Um, she was a great friend. Of, she is a great friend of mine, and I wouldn't have met her without uh, without these events. Um, I don't know. Lots and lots of people. Those, those yeah, are the ones sure. that stand out mainly. There, I, I think uh, if I could just add uh, the the online friendships. I think that I that I forged. 
um, through various email lists and uh, message board uh, websites. Um, also, I ha have stood the test of time, even though I haven't met uh, physically face to face a lot of these people, um, because the the rave thing and the internet thing was sort of happening around the same time. Um, it was you, you kind of that was my first introduction to sort of uh, an online online communities where we're like electronic music uh, enthusiasts and that sort of thing so um, certainly there are a lot of friendships that uh, have lasted to this day uh, where uh, I haven't actually met the <laughs> met the person uh, but I do consider them close friends oh there was one guy that I did meet actually we met in an online game oddly enough and somehow oh it was a it was a game called there which is sort of like second life or it's like an IRC channel sort of it's a social oh, yeah. thing that it's like unstructured social area where you have these avatars that can jump around and ride hoverboards and there are even music concerts and stuff uh, i think there must have been like social groups or something where you could sign up for them and i met this one guy he went by the name of Ludi um he was from Vancouver, and he was into psychedelic trance and Goa trance and stuff like that. And we somehow struck up a conversation, and our conversations went outside of the game. We talked a bunch. Uh, we were both into DJing. He's the guy that actually arranged and booked me to DJ at his party that was broken up in that public park. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which is pretty lame. But he was a super, super nice guy. And we only met in person for the first time after I flew, you know, six hours west. Uh, I stayed with my friend Jules at the time, but I also spent a night at uh, this guy's house, and we watched... Uh, the Thing and uh, anime movies and all this stuff together. I hung out with nice. him several times. We just hit it off so, so well. He was a really nice guy. He was like this skinny vegan guy with these huge dreadlocks, so he looked exactly like a stock of broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> or like Sideshow Bob. Yes. <laughs> Nicest guy. I hope he's doing well. I haven't talked to him for a while. He was a Cisco certified network engineer, too, so he would help me with my college homework at times as well. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So that's gonna, that kind of answered my next question. So we're going to skip ahead to uh, this one. What were the best and worst performances that you ever went to? I don't think I remember the worst, but I can think of some of the best ones. Do you want to take this one first? Um, yeah. My goodness. Um, well, I, I, keep, I, I do keep coming back to uh, the Dub Tribe um, live performances that I saw in the summer of 1997. Oh, um, yeah, at WEMF, yeah, definitely WEMF 97, and I saw them actually in my hometown, Waterloo, about three weeks before that. Hmm. Um, and uh, just a phenomenal live show. Um, they really sort of brought, they would bring the room, or in WEMF's case, the, the tent uh, together in sort of this sort of really vibe-rich uh, environment where everyone was, was sort of focused on... Um, sort of this apolitical political message about you know about changing yourself and saving the world and and all that lovey uh you know west coast hippie stuff um and uh just the the just the uh positivity i think uh is what i remember the most uh from those those performances um and as i recall because i was there too for all i know i might have stepped on your toes while dancing it's or something. possible yep <laughs> um from what I recall, I don't know if this was the setup of the tent or if they chose to do this, but I believe their performance was just like on the grass on the same level. As yeah, I think they, yeah, they were. I think they had a table set up, but they were sort of standing. Uh, yeah. they weren't on a stage. Yeah, which is so cool because that was a kind of a message of equality in and of itself that they were yeah. on exactly the same level as the audience. Absolutely, and when I saw them at uh, this big uh, nightclub space uh, prior to that. Um, they were on the stage, but they were um, actually were they on the stage? But I, I think they were actually sitting on the ground. 
on pillows. <laughs> they, had, they had all of their gear um, just sort of, you know, scattered in front of them. And uh, they were basically at eye level uh, with the crowd. And uh, that certainly brought, uh, brought things, uh, you know, um, together even, even more so. Um, because at that point, you were, you were kind of getting into that superstar DJ like the first hints of, of that sort of thing with stages and the DJs up on platforms way away from the uh, uh, from the audience, um, whereas you know at, at your average warehouse party they, they would tend they tended to be on the same level, uh, just with their decks and, and that sort of thing. So um, for that, it was really neat to, to sort of see performers who weren't uh, uh, weren't afraid to have their gear so close to uh, um, this frothing mass of, uh, of ravers um, that were being eaten alive by mosquitoes um, at WEMF, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty chill to see them to see them on their pillows. Yeah, it was cool. But uh, worst performance. Um, I don't know. Like they, I, I think I, I tended to group. Um, I would try to, you know, record my experiences sort of uh, on the basis of like the night, how the night went, and and whether the party was uh, as a whole, you know, okay. Because you know, technical glitches will happen or whatever, and a record will skip. And, and very just, true. But trying to forgive I it. Did. But I just I remember one party at the warehouse um, in Toronto called Superfly. And uh, it was the first time that I went to an event, and it just it felt so like generic. Um, there wasn't any anything that was really sort of. Uh, um, I didn't have like a life changing experience on the dance floor, and I was kind of you know I was kind of expecting that week after week, you know. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say any of the DJs were bad, but it was just sort of this night where it was like, huh? Well, I guess I guess that happened, and we just went home type of thing. Like there wasn't it wasn't like wow that was a great party. There wasn't anything wrong with it, and certainly there weren't any disasters that happened uh, um, to anyone in the uh, in the room. But it was just kind of like, huh? I guess you know, not not every party is gonna you know hit all the right uh, all the right buttons. So it was uninspired. Yeah, I would say uninspired and very just sort of uh, almost like rave by numbers. It was kind of <laughs> like, all right, let's check all these boxes off. We've got the the break dancers here, and we've got the headliners here. Ho hum, let's go home, kind of thing. Hmm. Um, that was it. Was weird. Like I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think back to like really horrible DJ performances, and um, nothing really comes to mind. Maybe, maybe we were, maybe we had a pretty discerning sense when looking at DJ lineups, but uh, of what was good and what, and what wasn't. But I, I, nothing, nothing horrible comes to mind. But just this really generic sort of. Rave That's experience. a valid response. You don't necessarily have to think of the worst performance because if you discerned and figured, oh, I know all these people, or oh, I know this guy's not very good, I'm not going to go to that. Then, uh, then it's clear that you might not have a really bad memory of a, of a uh, of going to one of these parties or see, or events. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, me, um, I'm struggling to think of a worst of a worst one because I mean the way raves were structured, usually they were. At least two rooms, and if you kind of weren't feeling what was going on in one room, you just walked a hundred feet in the other direction, and you had different people dancing to a different kind of music to a different performer. Um, I can think of a couple things though. Well, first of all, I can think of two experiences for like best DJ sets, um, not including DJ RAW, whose story I told at the beginning of last show. Mm-hmm. Um, there was. Okay, so uh, there was a guy from England, a techno DJ by the name of Marky G, 
Yes, Mark E.G. Oh, I think I, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, I saw him first at, a, at an indoor rave, and I saw him again later on at uh, WEMF. He was kind of a WEMF regular, I think. I think so. This guy is hilarious. He is a, a very good, technically proficient DJ. He's got terrific skills. He has excellent uh, choice of music. I should say I love when he plays techno, and he would sometimes play trance. And I found his trance kind of boring, but the techno stuff was exceptional. Um, what was so awesome about Marky G was he was like serious punk kind of an attitude. He had like mostly shaved head with like these big spikes in his hair. He kind of looked like a Pokemon, I guess, but he was like this big, like string bean looking British punky kind of a guy. Gotta Lots catch of them all. <laughs> tattoos and piercings and all of that. Yeah, he's got a very distinctive look. He very much does. He, um, while he was performing, um, he well, just the way the I'll, I'll preface it by saying that like the energy that this guy exudes, like impressed me so much when I saw him the first time at this indoor rave that I squeezed my way to the front of the uh, to the front of the room where I saw that some people were like dancing on stage, just some other uh, ravers are dancing on stage. I climbed up on stage and stood behind him so that I could watch him play and watch his hands and stuff. Nice. And nobody shooed me away. So that was super cool. You can't imagine that ever happening at a concert or something. So mm-hmm. that's how much this guy impressed me. So while I was thankfully standing behind this guy, he would like scream at the crowd and stuff. He's like, you're a bunch of fucking assholes. <laughs> he would flip them off. He would like scre- just scream Aah! at them. And uh, then about halfway through the set, he looked down and he found these uh, boxes of plastic water bottles that were intended like for all the DJs. To, to help themselves, and he did. He would reach down, grab a water ball, bottle, unscrew it, and just throw it into the crowd. Like <laughs> splashing people, like, he threw it so far. He was so funny. I never saw it, but I heard rumors that when he would play at WEMF, he would sometimes, like, pick up his Technics 1200 and smash it on the ground like a rock star smashing his guitar. Well, I know he, I know he was known for smashing uh, records. Oh, that's right. He would do that, too. He would break records over his head that's and throw right, it yeah. into the crowd. Such a funny guy. And he had been DJing, I heard him on the radio in an interview once, since like 1989 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Super old school. So that's obviously where his skill comes from. He took it seriously and he practiced and he was booked for good reason. So that was an unforgettable performance, especially because I was standing behind him out of the line of fire. But he was really busy with twiddling knobs and all that. And it's not like this day and age where that's part of a performance and they're twisting the pots and the knobs on a thing that's not even plugged in just so that's that they right, look yeah. awesome. No, this guy was really busy. And like that's why that was part of the reason why I wanted to watch him, because he was manipulating the sounds so much, like cutting the bass and like using this flangey thing to make it sound all laser beamy, doing all this awesome stuff. And... This must have been around 97, 98 or something. There was not a whole lot of technology like that, or if there was, it was expensive and uncommon. So he was doing really, really interesting, engaging stuff, playing, not just playing the music, but playing with the music, which is a sign of an exceptional DJ, and using, like, 100% the tools that were at his disposal in very interesting ways. That's why I just had to see what this guy was doing. That was very important to me for when I started DJing a couple of years later. Um, So, geez, worst... I have another glowing experience and then a disappointing experience from the same DJ. Uh, There was a Toronto DJ by the name of Hard Trip. Um, I had a cassette of his, and I really loved it. I think it was just called DJ Hard Trip Volume 16. He had a whole bunch of mixtapes. It's a mixtape that I loved. It was Happy Hardcore and Happy Gabber, so like quite hardcore, uh, bouncy, thumpy, jubilant kind of music. (laughs) 
Um, and he played songs, uh, a lot of songs I'd never heard before, which was rare because I was really into that kind of music. So that was super cool. Um, there was one song that I absolutely loved, and when I was writing in the car with someone, she insisted that we rewind the tape like 14 times and listen to the song <laughs> over and over. And I didn't mind, even though I'd heard the song a million times or the tape a million times. Um, he was playing at this one really little underground club uh, on College West known colloquially as Sunshine Wanes. Oh, yes, I remember that place. You remember that place? Yeah. Um, so, I, I, I must have been there early because I was like the only person on the dance floor. He was playing and I was I was dancing and having a great time. Um, he uh, was kind of taking a break after he pressed play on one song and was just kind of sitting back and not doing anything. So I walked up to him and I said, I have this tape of yours, volume 16. There's this one song that I love, and I sort of like fumbled whatever I thought the words were. And he's like, oh, I know what, I know that. I brought that with me, but it, the record's kind of warped. So I'm like, I don't mind. So he said, hang on, I'm going to play it just for you. And he played this song just for me. No way. And it was kind of warped. It was kind of going like... (laughs) And it kind of makes you seasick and queasy. But I didn't care. I danced so hard. And this was kind of the bond between DJ and Raver. That was an amazing, amazing, unforgettable gesture. That was incredible. The fact um, that he played it for you, even though it's scratchy, and you listen and you dance to it despite it being scratchy, is awesome. It's amazing. That that was that was a very very cool thing. Because a lot of DJs uh, really resent when you ask them for a, a request. Oh yes. Some some of them take it personally. Some but some Especially cool DJs. Especially they have a, maybe if they have a planned set, they don't want to because they know how they're going to sequence the music. I guess so. I never thought about it, but I don't know if planned sets were such a big thing. At least with locals at a little rave club, um, they'd probably just kind of go off the cuff. So later on, I would be disappointed when I saw him play at a big rave. He had kind of made it a little bit bigger, and he announced that he was no longer going to play hardcore music. Now he's going to play trance, and he played boring trance. I liked a lot of trance, but there was a lot of trance that was really played out, that was that had already done the rounds, people were already familiar with those songs, and it all it was very much same old, same old, and I was so disappointed, because I was... I still cheered for the guy, and I thought to myself, good for you for playing in front of this humongous crowd. But uh, I, I wasn't really digging what he uh, had to play for us anymore. But he did have one song that he wrote himself that he worked into there, too, and I liked that better than... He... he I remember it even. Wow, I didn't think of this till right now. He uh, remixed this KLF song... Uh, uh, Trans Central or something like that. Oh yes, yeah. Last Train to Trans Central. That's it. That's it. He remixed it. It was really good. Hmm. So that's that. Neat. Good question. So um, I know that you once told me a story about that, how you kept like a signature or a journal, a signature book or journal that you brought. Yes. So uh, you can. Why don't you tell us about that? And Brandon, uh, did you ever do anything like this? Like keep some sort of like memento uh, book or journal that you brought with you to raves? Um, I did not. Uh, I know that uh, the whole sign my book thing was was pretty uh, popular and I'm pretty sure I signed a lot of people's uh, journals at, uh, at parties over the years but I never I never carried one myself. Um, I did have a binder that I just kept sticking um, any rave related stickers that I would get um, onto the uh, onto the binder and uh it got pretty ridiculous uh with uh like if you hold it under the light it refracts like a disco ball pretty much because of all of the uh uh the shiny reflective uh, stuff that's on there but that was sort of my thing was i guess collecting um collecting stickers uh collecting flyers um I have and, this. Uh, I have this one amazing rave sticker. Sorry to interrupt. That's all right. Of uh, it's this beautiful woman with grenades for boobs, and she's pulling the pins. 
Oh yes, I I, I may may or may not uh, have seen that myself. That was the coolest sticker. Sorry to interject. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, there were some there's a lot a lot of good stickers out there. A lot of a lot of good design work uh, mm-hmm. done back in those days. Um, and I also uh, when my when my binder got too ridiculous uh, and I basically was no longer in school, um, I started putting the stickers on uh, the filing cabinets that I used uh, to hold up my turntables. Hmm. So now there's just a ton of stickers on these uh, on these filing cabinets, and I still I still add to them whenever I uh, whenever I come across something uh, something I like. But uh, the rave journal thing, I remember signing uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people's uh, uh, books, sketchbooks back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> Well, me, yeah, I had I had lots of mementos like that. I did have the rave book. We also uh, we also would go to the craft store or whatever and buy stickers. I remember there was one Toronto club called the Big Bop, mm-hmm. Queen and mm-hmm. Bathurst, I think it was. Um, yep, I went there with you a few times. Yeah, you did go there with me once or twice. I don't remember what the event was. Um, um, I think we might have tried to go for Halloween or something. We tarted. Oh, I think I took you to a dark rave. Yeah, at Halloween. Oh, those once. guys. Yeah, they they had some they had some good parties there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do remember once my friend and I finding a dollar store that had like stickers of people's names, and so one of the names on there was Crystal, and so we went, <laughs> we we before we went into the party, we uh, bought some pizza at the Pizza Pizza across the street, and then we looked at the outdoor wall of Pizza Pizza, which was like this white and orange uh, diamond checkers all the way up it, That's mm-hmm. right. and we systematically took off one crystal sticker and put it in the middle of each of those diamonds until we had done about 95 or so crystal stickers all over the wall of the pizza pizza. Right. Boy, was that a terrible thing for us to do. Oh, <laughs> you terrible human beings, you. I know, but I digress. Uh, I did have, uh, I did, I would bring one or two uh, books. Um, I, w- I would go to like stationery stores or something. I had like a Karopi uh, book, which is this little kind of like a neon techno frog. Oh yes, the frog. Yeah. I had. Um, what else did I have? I had. Um, I had this like uh, fun fur blue uh, notebook, which just had regular line paper in it, and people would put their stickers in it. I would ask people to sign them. Some people would put their phone numbers or their e- rarely their email addresses because not a lot of people had them then. Um, and they would write a little poem. They would draw me a, a picture. They would draw graffiti or they would draw a cartoon or they would just kind of write about who they were or how they were feeling. All I would say is just like, sign my book or do you want to write something? And some people wrote this really thoughtful stuff. Some people would be done in 30 seconds. Some people would take 25 minutes. Yeah. It was so cool. So I still have all of these things. Oh, that's awesome. I, uh, I'll see if I can dig them up. I took pictures as I went through some of my old stuff of some of these uh, pages. There's some amazing stuff on there. My my friend Karina did this amazing uh, cartoony portrait of me. I forgot to mention Karina and my favorite raver buddies. I, I oh, probably yes. went to more parties with her than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Someone that I met on the TV Ontario website where we both paid $15 a year for our first uh, internet email addresses. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. She was a super, super cool girl. She still is. We keep in touch to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the whole sign my book thing, that was that was a great thing. I'm glad I still have the that as a keepsake. Cool. So, and um, I know you've mentioned how there's sort of an open sharing culture in that. So, uh, did you ever participate in the sharing or giving culture? And conversely, have you ever received anything or noting that you may have kept? Oh, I'm going to go first on this one. I have go ahead. I have a life-changing one for this one. And it's just the smallest little gesture that just taught me a lifelong lesson with a keepsake I have to this day. I'm pretty sure this was at Hullabaloo 3. I'm mentioning a lot of Hullabaloo's, but that's because they were the ones with the fondest memories and were the best organized and were the most fun. Um, 
I was Hullabaloo 3 was interesting I think it was in a nightclub or something but there was this kind of a long hallway between the two rooms as I recall um, which was otherwise kind of unutilized space and so people were just kind of standing around chatting or hanging out or taking a rest or it was a little bit quieter than the main rooms um this one girl came up to me and she had this great big Tupperware container full of like wooden beads and she reached in there and she pulled out this kind of a necklace thing and she's like would you like this and I'm like oh no thanks I don't really have enough money and she said uh, oh these are these are completely for free please please take one I would like you to have one and so I took it from her and she just kind of smiled at me and we chatted for like two seconds and then she's like okay well I've got I'm on a mission I'll have a good day have a good night and she skipped away and I had this like bead necklace sort of a thing I guess it was a necklace it was too small to be a necklace and it was too big to be a bracelet but I was just so touched that someone would she had this like big Tupperware container like it must have been like a, a six liter kind of a Tupperware container full of this arts and crafts stuff that she made herself for the sole purpose of giving away to people for free and so when I got like that was really touching to me that was a very important gesture for me and something that really taught me like an important life lesson, some example that I wanted to live up to for my whole life because it was such a beautiful thing. So when I went home, I took a couple of the beads off and I wore that necklace all the time, but I kept two of those wooden beads as well. And eventually I ended up giving uh, that necklace to my very good friend Jules. But to this very day in my winter jacket, I have, my goodness, this is, this is like 20 years later. To this day in my winter jacket, I have those two wooden beads in my pocket. That is, sometimes I'll just reach into my pocket and hold them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's, I can't give a better example than that. That was an extremely meaningful, beautiful, important thing. How about you? Very cool. Well, yeah, you know, um, there were a couple of times where we were sort of on the the giving end, uh, my wife and I, and... uh, and uh, I guess the receiving end, but um, we would we would do uh, we would you know put together uh, plastic uh, beaded necklaces and wristbands and stuff like that before um, or bracelets too uh, before uh, parties and just sort of hand them out randomly um, at, at events. Uh, and Hullabaloo was probably a good place to to do that. Um, we'd also uh, dub up a bunch of uh, mixtapes and and put like. Uh, inspirational messages on sort of the J cards or whatever, and then just uh, hand them out to, to the people that were dancing the hardest at, uh, at parties, just mm. completely randomly, like no, you know, just kind of like, here, have a tape. And, you know, the reactions that we would get would be uh, usually uh, a combination of uh, befuddlement and, uh, and thanks. Um, so that was kind of fun. It was just, you know, just a, the, kind of the fun sort of sharing thing to do. Uh, there was another time where we were just driving randomly around on a Saturday afternoon and saw this entire tribe of, of ravers out in the daylight, uh, which, you know, wasn't their natural habitat. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, like, they, I don't know if they'd gone to the mall or something and they were just kind of milling around. And so we pulled into the parking lot and, and, uh, uh, I think I was driving a Ford Taurus at the time, and and uh, we were like, "What are you guys, you know, what are you guys doing?" And they were say, they said, "Well, we're trying to get, we're trying to get to so and so's house," and uh, it was like 20 minutes away down the, you know, on the next uh, highway exit. Um, so we were like, "Well, just you know, hop in and we'll take you there," kind of thing. And uh, if you've ever tried to cram, cram, you know, 10 people into a car that's only supposed to hold you know, four. Um, it was kind of funny. Like, people may or may not have been hiding in the trunk um, that, uh, that, at, that, at that time. But it was just, you know, it's just the, the thing to do, right? Cool. Um, which on the one hand, you know, you're, the peace, love, unity, and respect thing, um, it was a little easier to do when it was people 
uh, aimed at people within your own sort of subcultural group, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and it was kind of like, ah, oh, you guys, you guys, we're all part of the same team here. Let's, you know, let's let's uh, uh, let's just help each other out, kind of thing. Um, and then there was another time, uh, also car related. Uh, um, we were uh, driving, I think, to London from Kitchener down the 401, and we stopped at. Um, at one of the uh, rest stops along the way, and the guy at the Tim Hortons noticed I was wearing uh, uh, my Plur shirt, and was like, "Hey, peace, love, unity, respect, man, that's awesome." And so I think he gave us a free, a free donut. Oh, at, very cool. At Timmy's, and so we were like, we turned around and we're like, "Okay, well, this guy, we got to give him something." So we ran back to the car and popped uh, whatever mixtape we were listening to out of the uh, the tape deck. I think it was um, could have been Isaac S, who was a house DJ of mm. some of some note in in Kitchener Waterloo, hmm. and just like. Ran, ran back inside and gave it to him and he was like what and we were like see ya and uh and that was kind of the that was just sort of the thing that you did right that's brilliant um just just for fun so yeah and you know like nine times out of ten at a party you'd bump into somebody and it'd be like oh sorry and then you'd, you'd either smile or hug or whatever like it was just uh um it was a very very sort of positive uh, place to be um even just randomly uh, random strangers on, on the dance floor kind of thing. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I did something a little similar. The last rave I ever went to, I don't remember how many years ago it was now, not that many. Hullabaloo had a, like a one last reunion kind of a Oh, rave. yeah. And I felt really old. Well, I, I was old. I didn't feel old, but I was older than the vast majority of people there, and the DJs were kind of from the end of the Hullabaloo era, not really from the beginning or the middle that I was more familiar with. Even so, I had a great time. I stuck around until like 12.30 a.m. or something, and that was it. I was just there to kind of do my thing and, and refresh my memory. Bianca and I were, were either dating or married at that point. I think we might have been married. We must have been married at that point. She didn't want to come with me, which is too bad, but I just wanted to do this one last thing. So I brought... Yeah, uh, I remember we actually... You bought the tickets from Anabolic Frolic's wife, who live, and they lived in our neighborhood, like a block from oh, us. Oh, that's right. Yeah, oh, Robin. Cool. Yeah, that's right. She, she They lived right near us. So... Um, I went there and I brought, uh, I ripped all of the mixtapes, or yeah, all the mixtapes I had ripped from my website, I burned them to a CD with some other stuff. What did I put on there? I don't know. I put on all kinds of stuff on there, and I, I made like 10 of them, and I gave them away to random people as well. That was very much a thing that you did. Yeah. And you didn't expect it. You were always thrilled when someone did it, but it wasn't an uncommon thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, so that takes care of the, uh, after you... The uh, po- like a post nostalgic event or a reunion type of event, but mm. did Brandon? Did you ever do anything like that? Like go, like stop going, but then go to one last event just because it felt like it was supposed to be like a reunion or nostalgic type of thing. Oh well, absolutely. I mean, I I, uh, uh, I partied pretty regularly from like '96 all the way up to, gosh. Uh, well, probably like 2000 and, uh, 2007 or so before, oh, you know, wow. kind of just, uh, you know, making it more of a less of a uh, regular thing. And um, I guess having kids will do that to you on the one hand. Oh, sure. Um, That's a long time. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, I went to uh, I, I actually my wife and I went to that last uh, the Hullah party hmm. Um I guess it was one more group hug. Oh, that's the, right. Uh, At the opera house. The name. Yeah, and that was—I mean—that was 2007. So that's nine. Ah. Nine years ago. Jeez. Time um, flies. Wait, that the one you went to? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, so we were there. It was that was a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like I mean, you know, you the the whole notion of going out, 
you know, at all hours as you get a little, you know, get a little older, uh, um, doesn't quite hold the same, you know, the same attraction, I guess. Um, and plus I started going out to a lot of, you know, nightclub type events instead. Um, I guess uh, around that time. Man, do I wish there were like seven to ten p.m. raves. <laughs> I would be all over that. That's right. Yeah, it was pretty funny at this this uh, little event I went to last weekend, uh, where I was I was thinking to myself, well, the babysitters are making a lot of money tonight. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, it was all the whole old rave crew, and we're all sort of in our you know mid to late thirties now. Um, but you know, it, it was. Uh, when you when when the time is right, you can still certainly go out and have a uh, have a good time. But the the hullabaloo thing was was kind of neat because uh, I had been to not the first one but the second one back in in '97, mm-hmm. and then uh, we went to the uh, the final like the last one back in 2005 before they uh, they did this. Oh, okay, now this is the last one. Right. 2007. So um, that was kind of a neat. It sort of put a cap on 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 sort of that type of raving experience. Um, for me, uh, with the happy hardcore and the the drum and bass and jungle and that sort of thing, um, because for you know after that, I think for me it was mostly like techno or house uh, that I would go out, uh, you know, going to um, those type of nights as opposed to uh, um, something a little more flamboyant. <laughs> so it was it that that was kind of fun. But for nostalgia, uh, whenever. Um, Whenever one of the, kit, the the DJs in Kitchener who actually made it big uh, internationally, uh, whenever he comes back, uh, Mike Shannon is his name. Uh, he'll come back maybe once once a year or so, and then all of the old, uh, the usual suspects will will come out of the woodwork and uh, and get together for uh, for sort of a party um, where he's uh, headlining. So that's that's kind of the annual reunion, I guess, um, of a lot of the old you know mid '90s ravers uh, from our our neck of the woods. Oh, that's so nice. Mm-hmm. We probably have time for one last one. We have time for two, just because oh. there's one that doesn't take much time, and it's. I assume that you may not, that sometimes that you may on a few occasions have gone all night into the morning. So, uh, were there any places that you may have gone to eat that you knew were always open and that you and that you like going to for your uh, post rave uh, feed? <laughs> there were times, having been out all night, where I was uh, where I was. Uh, uh, famished, and there are times after having been out all night that uh, I did not want to eat for another twelve hours. Um, that being said, Franz was one place, the kind of a greasy food, greasy spoon diner. Oh yeah, the one on College. Yeah, yeah. This on is college. a really amazing diner. It's called Franz Diner. It's been around since the fifties in mm-hmm. Toronto. So if you come and you're in the mood for like a good greasy spoon, this is the place to go. And otherwise, just Tim Hortons, really. Um, we wanted to go somewhere usually where we would just blend in. Like there's this, there's this phenomenon. After you've been to a rave all night, you will sit somewhere that is just like absolutely quiet. You'll just be in the car or something driving somewhere, and you'll still hear in your head thump, 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 thump. And maybe you're nodding your head to this music that is still in your head. Just this kind of internal metronome <laughs> that's kind of been uh, flicked in that's your right. head that takes a while to turn off. That plus the uh, hearing damage. Yeah, too. That's right. Your ears, ears ringing. The temporary tinnitus. Yep. So um, <laughs> we usually wanted to go somewhere very, very quiet. The, I'll tell you, the worst thing that we ever did after being out all night was we went to uh, my friend's house. I don't know where his... Oh, he had, like, hippie parents, which were super cool with the whole thing. We went to his house, and we were all kind of crashed on his couch watching 
uh, TV or whatever. He's like, oh, I want to put on a movie. And he put on a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> and that is not something in various <laughs> states of mind like. that you really want to watch after your night of debauchery. That That's was amazing. highly unpleasant. <laughs> uh, how about you, Brandon? All right, well, I, I do have a couple of early morning stories. Um, when we went to um, Hullabaloo 2... Uh, we dragged along uh, a friend of ours uh, who in turn dragged along a friend of his who had never been to a rave before but wanted you know wanted to uh, to experience one and they were uh, quite a few years younger than than my wife and I were at the time um, and I guess they had made some kind of deal where you know one kid said that he was sleeping over at you know his friend's house or whatever and we didn't really think much of it so we went out we we partied and uh, we drove back in the early morning, it was about seven or eight, and um, we dropped him off at, uh, at his house. And uh, we were pulling out of the parking area, out of the driveway, and we were watching as he and his friend walked up to the door. And just as they were about to grab the, the door handle, the door was yanked open. And the young guy's mother was standing there in her bathrobe oh. with this angry, look on her face Ooh, rolling pin in hand it, pretty much and hair, i was hair like, curls too <laughs> the full yeah, effect it, 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 maybe maybe not with the hair rollers but uh <laughs> uh i was like well i guess i better go and <laughs> so we just peeled out of there um leaving i'm sure a very awkward conversation um in our wake uh, but anyhow in terms of where we would hit up uh after um for for breakfast and stuff uh there were a couple of times where um, we went to the Golden Griddle Pancake House mm-hmm. uh, back when those were open. Good 24 slumming hour, food. Twenty-four hours. Oh uh, yeah, that was kind of nice. Um, I remember once. I think it was also a hullabaloo where we went to uh, a, a Golden Griddle at like six or seven in the morning, and naturally the service was just awful. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the food uh, not much better. Although I do have a soft spot for for the Golden Griddle uh, pancakes, but mm-hmm. that's that's another discussion. Um, <laughs> And uh, otherwise, uh, when I would go out uh, around town in, in uh, Kitchener, um, I would usually hit up a pita pit after, uh, after oh. I was done and just get like a, a pita and uh, maybe a chocolate milk or something because um, those tended to be open uh, very late because uh, I lived in a university town. Um, so there were always students uh, going, you know, going out late at night. And in fact, the, my, my favorite pita pit uh, was located uh, right outside um, pretty much the cheesiest uh, nightclub, you know, if you can think of like your, your standard top 40 um, meat market type of thing. <laughs> um, so I'd be there in my full rave regalia while uh, everybody would be stumbling out after last call um, to to get a pita of their own. Uh, so that was always awkward and, and weird. Oh, nice. Uh, you know, back in the back in the day. So, but yeah, a pita would uh, would hit the spot for sure um, after a long night of uh, of dancing. Uh, and also, well, I guess um, uh, you know, a, a hot dog cart in the middle of the uh, middle of uh, Spadina or something would would also some street meat uh, was also consumed at various. Uh, Various times in Toronto. Oh yeah, you you've reminded me actually. This was the place was only open until only until like four o'clock or so. But oh, only four o'clock. Well, yeah. <laughs> this is the nightclub area, so places like for pitas and whatnot, those were open, and it was a gold mine for them to have a restaurant in that kind of an area. Um, there was this one Chinese restaurant called Mr. Pong's, and they had this awesome like Pontiac Firebird out front that was like done up like a police car with these like green flashes on top or something with like a panda on the side that said Mr. Pong's. That was awesome. 
they had their signature uh, food was called the Awesome Jumbo, which was this humongous deep fried dripping uh, <laughs> spring roll nice. or egg roll. It was the Goodness. most delicious thing. You gained like three pounds just <laughs> smelling it, but it was so good. That's awesome. It was awesome. That that was that was a, a must stop. Mm-hmm. Sometimes before, usually after, better after than before. Jumping up and down for hours. Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> now you've reminded me of my own Chinese restaurant story. Um, <laughs> In, uh, in Guelph, uh, which is just outside of Waterloo, um, on the way to Toronto, uh, there was, uh, I, we would go to a regular uh, Thursday night club night uh, in the downtown, and uh, there was a downtown um, uh, Chinese restaurant called Sun Sun's that would, you know, uh, stay open and, at all hours uh, to catch uh, Guelph's downtown club and bar um, uh, crowd, which was pretty immense at the time. There were so many bars in downtown uh, downtown Guelph because it's also a university town. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we would go to a club called Van Gogh's Ear. And uh, oh, yeah. a lot of good nights at that. A lot of good Thursday nights, Wednesday nights. Um, I was friends with, with the promoters. Uh, some fantastic dance floor memories. But one of the things that always made the night perfect was stumbling across the street um, and going into the front lobby of this restaurant, which was otherwise closed off, but they would take the buffet, sort of that steam table or whatever, and and uh, wheel it up to the very front of their um, of the restaurant and sort of block off the entrance. So you'd have all of your you know your your chow mein and your your chicken balls and all that stuff right there. And it was they, they were making a mint. They could they could print money. Uh, from the amount of, uh, of of food that they forked over, you would you would pay ten bucks and you'd get a styrofoam container just with stuff ladled into it. Oh yeah. And uh, I would get like I would I wouldn't ask for anything other than the chicken balls. Mm. So I would I would get like a a, a, a huge styrofoam container full of chicken balls. Oh yeah, more deep fried goodness. It was just it was so good that uh, um, my wife uh, would be like, if we were going out, uh, she'd be like, you have to drop off. You have to pick up Sun Suns for me and drop it off in the vestibule of my residence at, at college. <laughs> oh yeah, and we would do that. Like we would go and driving, you know, drive past if she wasn't coming out with us. Um, you know, when we were dating, uh, we would still we would drop it off in the front of their of her uh, college residence and then just keep right on driving. <laughs> Terrific! It was legendary. <laughs> All right. Awesome. And we're... to finish off. Okay. Do either of you have any regrets, aka regrets? Regrets. <laughs> Uh, yes and no. So in the end, no, definitely not. I'm glad I was there. I'm, I did, I did what I did. I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I'm here now. I'm glad I'm in the situation I'm in now. I'm glad I have this wisdom and these nostalgic memories and stuff. And I'm pretty much none the worse for wear. So I'm all good on that. I have one regret. Uh, this is, this will end us off on a very sobering note. So this is something that made me guilty all these years, these years later, it must have been almost 20 years now. Um, I, at one party, I uh, met and hung out with, like, for the whole night, uh, this uh, girl. Her name was Rose. She, um, we got in this great, deep conversation. She was about 10 years older than me or something. We got in this great conversation just about life in general and, uh, you know, talked talk personally about ourselves and stuff. Um, she was uh, transgender and talked about... Uh, just some of the procedures involved with that and like the stigma and all of that kind of stuff. We, we hit it off and we had a great conversation that whole night. Um, I saw her again when I was in line for another rave a few weeks later and I don't know why I did it, but I like, I saw her and she saw me and then I just kind of looked away. 
so I kind of spurned her. And I've always regretted this for my whole life. I regretted it immediately, and I've regretted it ever since. It's something that I feel really terrible about, and I've, like, taken that, taken it upon myself to let that be a reminder for me not to treat anyone in that way. So I, I feel really bad about that to this day. That is definitely my biggest regret from all of that. Uh, how about you, Brendan? Well, um, I guess my my regrets are few. Um, like you, I mean, I have very positive memories, and I think it was a, a part of my life where it, it certainly shaped who I am today. I had a lot of fun. My my regret though is is uh, that I didn't uh, I didn't do more of it. Um, you know, I I went out on a, you know a fairly regular basis, but there were times where. You know, I could have gone to another event or I could have gone to either a Destiny rave or a hullabaloo. And I was like, ah, eh, you know, not this weekend, you know, because I'll, I'll get around to it. There, there will always be more. There will always be more parties. Not really thinking that uh, things would change. And, and uh, you, you know, you, you think that, you know, you think that the things that you're into are going to stay pretty much the same, you know, for forever. And of course, that's not true. You know, the times change, people change, and, and music scenes definitely change. Um, so my only regret is that I didn't have more uh, opportunities to, you know, make memories and see DJs and dance uh, in that sort of rave environment where it wasn't quite as uh, uh, polished and, uh, um, you know, structured as it is today. Hmm. Um, and you know, like I'm trying to make up, trying to make up for uh, for some lost time. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, like there were lots of parties now that I look back at the flyer going, I could have gone to this. Why didn't I go? <laughs> uh, so I'm trying, you know, moving forward on a different scale to uh, to take those opportunities to, to have a good time um, now. That's a good answer. I, I think of two. I think of uh, two contrasting uh, statements about that. Number one, I think it's Woody Allen who says ninety percent of life is showing up. Yep. So that's a really good one. But on the other hand, I think of, uh, we just watched this movie, Pi, and the whole uh, the whole point of that movie is that if you work too hard at something, if you do too much of something, then you don't get perspective. You need to stop and take a break to appreciate what you have and to reflect on it and then to make your next step. And so I think of uh, one of my favorite songs by Spangl, which is called Nothing is Something Worth Doing. <laughs> so you can't, you can't do them all. That's true. That's true. All right. Oh, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of my questions. And then and in the process, you asked you to actually inadvertently answer a couple, which is why I did skip questions on my list. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I was happy that you did it. I'm like, good. This is uh, you're thinking the same vein that I am. Oh. We're just trying to be efficient. That's right. Mm-hmm. We did our best, I'm sure. Well, oh, Bianca, thank you. I have to thank Bianca most of all for being so super cool yeah, about this. Sure. Thank you very much. But uh, 99.9% as much. I will thank you as well, Brendan, for coming back on the show. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Good. Me too. Yeah. All right. Do you want to take it on home there, Toots? Sure, I will. Uh, thanks for joining us again and uh, indulging uh, Ryan's uh, nostalgic memories. It's really, really, we should have been nostalgic road trip in this one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so if you want to uh, reach us to tell us about any, to uh, tell us about what you think of this or even answer some of my question, questions, you can reach us on the web. We are squarefm.demodulated.com by email squarefm at demodulated.com or in 140 characters on Twitter, we are at squarewavesfm. 
So thanks for joining us. And hopefully next week we talk about more game, but we'll see what comes up. Oh, yeah. We don't have a topic, do we? We'll have to think of that. Yeah. All right. And we'd love to have you back on the show sometime, Brendan. Thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. It was yeah, you're uh, welcome a lot to come of fun. on the Thank show and uh, participate in a different type of conversation. One not about <laughs> raves. That's right. <laughs> sure. I, I do know things about other things. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> awesome. Thanks a million, folks, for listening. We love you lots. A big, big thanks to uh, to uh, Ryan and Emmanuel for your letters. We appreciated those a lot. And good luck to Joe with his ride for uh, margarine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't forget to slather yourself to improve the friction. Decrease the friction. Whatever. And thank you, Joey, for being such a good bird today, despite all the pooping and biting. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye, guys. Bye.